tip today in association with Slatteries of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slatteriesgarage.ie Morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007, the free phone number, won't cost you to make a call, Emma is looking after the programme today. Coming up on this morning's show, Miloco, to close its Carrick and Shure dairy product production facility, we'll be talking about that in just a short time. Thousands march for action on health services, Deputy Michael Lowry on the appalling situation uh, with so few dentists remaining in the medical card scheme in Ireland. Uh, Global politics with uh, Thomas Conway. We have our sports review and uh, what happens if you get less than six hours of sleep per night. I'll be particularly interested in that one. And of course needless to say, lots of uh, listener reaction to various topics right throughout the morning as well. Uh, You can text and WhatsApp 083 You can email tiptoday at tipfm.com. We're always glad to hear from you. Quick peek at uh, what's making headlines in the newspapers today. As Pat told you there, report finds that over 100 mentally ill children left without care. And that's uh, including some on medication. They were left for up to two years without care by the Child and Adolescent uh, Mental Health Service. That's CAMS, of course, a report uh, published today. It's an interim uh, report, uh, but the uh, uh, the doctor uh, looking after the report felt so compelled um, with what was happening that uh, it had to be published at this point. We'll be talking about that later as well. Um, the Irish Daily Mail home help shortage adding to hospital beds crisis. Uh, another health service crisis is looming over the lack of home help support for hospital patients ready to be discharged and we would have heard that on this programme last week as well. The Independent and uh, again that story of uh, CAMS uh, leading the way there. And also the Gardaí are investigating whether an issue over noise triggered a fatal attack on an 89-year-old patient by an agitated younger patient in a Cork hospital. And we'll be speaking to journalist Ralph Regal about that uh, later on in the programme as well. And uh, the Irish Examiner dominated by that story as well, as well as a picture of 89-year-old Matthew Healy um, who... uh, was assaulted with a a walking frame by all uh, accounts and he looks like a nice, gentle, uh, elderly man and what a pity uh, things had to end up uh, like that for him because I know that uh, he lost his wife just uh, a short time ago as well. So that's a quick look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you want to respond to any of that, 083 311 Now just as we came off air on Friday, there were rumblings that an announcement was imminent on the future of Maloco in Carrick Insure and sadly just after half past one, the company issued a statement announcing that they would be closing its site in Carrick Insure. Cormen Maloco, a joint venture company for the manufacture of dairy products between Belgian company Cormen and Tier Lawn. That's uh, the company formerly uh, Dan B, of course, in Ireland. Now, Ellie went out for us this morning to Carrick Insure to get the views of local people. I had, was in the, that was doing the rounds with a while. Things weren't going well, I said, uh, you know. Right. I had friends walking there, that's uh, What's the mood like there now? Ah, to be, yeah, sure. You know, jobs, news, and like, you know, it's kind of yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, what do you think it means then for, for Carrick and Shore? Ah, it's more job losses, like, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, more job losses, yeah. What would you like to see done? Oh, sure. Get more jobs, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. It's the same as the ten years ago, is it? You know, it's just sad. Often when I come to Carrick and Shore, people here would say that they're the forgotten about town of Tipperary. Is that how you really feel here? Uh, sometimes it does, because yeah. we get no... We know we, we get, kind of get no help down here. I mean, the Tannery years ago used to keep Carrick going. That closed down. And now the next to that was Maloko. Yeah. And that's keeping the, the population of the people off the door in there. But that's unfortunately it's closed. What's been the impact on the town or what do you think the impact will be? Probably young people of like uh, like back on the door. Yeah. And instead of going forward, going backwards. And that's the loss of for the small population of the town. Oh, shit, it's a long-time business now, isn't it? So I remember going up there as a child. Because really? we only lived down the road there, only live here now. Yeah, we knew a man that used to work on there and used to give us all the old chocolate, you know what oh. I mean? It's going to be a, a loss to the town. It's going to be a loss to workers, you know? Do you feel like not enough is being done to, to increase job um, availability and um, no, There's not prospects. enough being done, no. Yeah. There's not, no. Everywhere, there's nothing in Carrick anymore. Yeah. You couldn't buy Bishop Underwood in Carrick. It's a bit of a heritage, like, you know. Yeah. The Maloko opened when I was born. Really? Yeah. I was reading all about it the other day. Like the hospital below as well. Great hospital for people, you know. Left idle. It was a hospital where people could walk to visit. Yeah. That was living in the town. You didn't have to go up the road or down the roads. Now, when I read about the Maloko the other night, I thought they were come back years when I see the old pictures. I didn't realise it was now. All our chocolate crumb. <laughs> so I everything here. We're living down the hole. Do you feel neglected? Oh, geez, this town, yeah. Left yeah. behind was 30, 40 years. What are the employment prospects now for people locally? They're not near, outside the town, the whole really? town. It's actually not in Carrick. It's just left behind in the boom, that was all here. Well, right. You should have put a bypass in here 30 years ago and just passed it off completely. And that's the voices of Carrick people uh, this morning on that announcement that Corman uh, Maloko is to close its doors in a few months' time now, uh, Carrick and Shore Councillor Kieran Burke joins me now. Kieran, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. And thanks for coming on with us uh, today. Was it, was this a shocker? Like one of the contributors to the uh, the Vox Pop there, Kieran. Was this sort of was it known that this was going to happen, or that it was a possibility at least? Um, I'd say, Fran, it was known as a possibility. Um, I, I also heard rumblings over the last couple of years that um, things weren't going well there and they were trying to secure new contracts, etc., etc. But uh, I have to say, I was shocked on Friday afternoon when I heard the news. Um, I, I wasn't expecting it at all. So early on in the year, 2023, and mm. to have this announcement, you know... Um, I'd be very familiar with Maloko Factory. It's known as Maloko Factory to the mm. people in Carrick and Shore. Um, I, I actually had a maintenance contract there. I was there. My employees were there for probably 10 years uh, pre, uh, or before 2005 when Glanbia were the employers there. Yes. But uh, Maloko Factory is what is and was the backbone of employment in Carrick and Shore. That's with, with the tannery. The tannery closed in 1985 and, you know, every family in Carrick and Shore would have an association with Maloko Factory, with people working there. Or, or We grew up on chocolate crumb. Yes. <laughs> it, was, yes. it was the main product mm. there and every child in Carrick used it was reared in chocolate crumb. It was our treat every week uh, at the weekends, you know. But, but then... Um, 
when I was under contract there, mozzarella cheese was the main product there, uh, and it was absolutely flying. And then in 2005, um, an amalgamation be- uh, between Glanbia, or should I say Tierland, the new name, mm. uh, and Cormen. Uh, Maloco, they are a Belgian company and uh, Corman took a 55% um, uh, stake in in the business and uh, Tierland had 45% uh, and um, they they traded and traded quite well making butter spreads uh, but unfortunately it has come to a halt and there's 31 very very good jobs up there and um, I mean the, the jobs up there on a monetary value were were excellent you know there was no low paid people up there there were very very good jobs uh, but we, we need uh, everybody needs to put their shoulder to the wheel now to see yeah. what we can do to try and save these jobs or, or find an alternative to move in there and the company I mean according to what you're saying to me Kieran was capable of reinventing itself several times times uh, over the years. It's a pity that, uh, you know, if we knew about this sooner, maybe people could have acted on it. Yeah, I, I, I suppose, yes, Fran, that, that is the case. Now, um, when uh, once I heard this news on Friday afternoon, I contacted uh, Deputy Jackie Cal uh, because he would have a close association being chair of the Agricultural Committee. Yeah. Uh, and uh, immediately he was shocked as well. He he contacted, made contact to set up a meeting with the chief executive of uh, Tierland, Jim Bergen. Also, he contacted the Minister for Enterprise, Simon Coveney, to seek a meeting to see what solutions are, are explored, um, what possibilities can be done there to, to try and find an alternative for the facility mm. and also to make the proper supports are put in place for the employees there. And now we're waiting we're waiting on news back from we're waiting on a reply back. Right. We're hoping to get something back this morning. But but is your understanding Kieran that this is a done deal that uh, Carmen Maloco they've made up their minds on this. This is it. I I I I have to say I I don't I don't have any understanding of it because uh, as I said this news broke late Friday afternoon. Uh, and it was a shock to everybody. Unfortunately, we went into the weekend, and I'm hoping today, Monday, we can start getting answers. Mm. Um, it, 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 and again, it came across in the Vox Pop there. People are feeling, you know, they're feeling aggrieved in Carrick and Sure, They see this as, you know, a final blow to employment uh, in the town. They talk about it as being a black spot, the forgotten town, Kieran. You can understand why they're frustrated and annoyed. Absolutely, and I totally agree with the with the listeners and their contributions. Um, from an impl- employment view, Carrick, yes, is a forgotten town. Um, even if you look at the strategies with Tipperary County Council, the new Tipperary County Council, um, in relation to employment and enterprise, they concentrate on Nina in north of the county and Clonmel in south of the county. And, you know, whether we like it or not, times have changed. We move on. Carrick is a satellite town. If you go to and do a survey in Carrick and Shore, you will find that um, a huge percentage of people employed have to commute every day to either Waterford, Kilkenny, Clonmel or Dungarvan to work. And the fact that Carrick is there on on the border with Waterford as well is is that a sort of a drawback for the town? Do you think? Well, I I I would say the complete opposite. I I would always try and use that to our advantage, and it, it never has really been explored. Um, we are so central to Clonmel, Kilkenny, 
Dungarvan and Waterford City. Um, Carrick should be should really be developed, in my opinion, as a centre. You know, uh, we're right in the middle of all these places. Now, we're actually trying to do this from a tourism point of view. I mean, there's there's serious stuff being done uh, from a tourism point of view for Carrick and Shure going forward with our blue way and trying to extend it into the green way in Waterford, etc. Using Carrick as the centre point for all of this. And probably the future and key to for Carrick and Shure mm. um, isn't really industry because it's so difficult to get people to move into the town and set up a business in there when when there's it's far more attractive and the infrastructure is far greater in in places like Clanmel and Waterford. Yes, but it's very hard to turn. I mean, the lovely ideas there about tourism. It's very hard to turn that into substantial jobs like people enjoyed in Loco, for example. Oh no, 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 and and you know that that's. That's the case. Maloco, Maloco, unfortunately, I mean, there was a time when Maloco employed 200 people. Mm. Uh, and now it's down to 31. As I said, there were 31 excellent jobs um, in Maloco. Uh, but look, Fran, there's nothing dead yet. I mean, we're, we're, there's, going to be, there's going to be meetings held. There's going to be, uh, we're going to explore possibilities to see can we hold on to the jobs. And if not, I mean, there's a fine facility up there. Um, it's kitted out to do this type of work, butter spreads and, and uh, to deal with dairy products. And we want to see what we can put in there uh, as an alternative if Carmen is going to close completely. Yeah, because you can't help but look at the success of Kerry, uh, Kieran. you know, with, with dairy products worldwide at this point, you know. They, oh, oh, sure, yeah. Surely there's a part of that available. Uh, or... I, I, and, and I'll drop this to you, Fran. Bear in mind, the chief executive of Glanbia, the, the, the boss, was educated in Carrick and Shore uh, and and lived only three uh, lived three miles outside the town and in South Kilkenny. Right, so would be well aware of the importance of this. The, well, the, would, yeah. I, I would like to think so because I mean, you know, this this is the last of the traditional factories. Yeah. You know, when when Ireland was was industrialised in the thirties, forties, and fifties, I mean, this was one. This is the last of the traditional factories in this area. You know, um, the tannery was was the tannery, as I said, and, and the local factory were the backbone of employment. Every family in Carrick and Shore in its area would have an association with both of those factories, and they're gone now, unfortunately. Um, but we have to make well. It's it's Maloco isn't gone yet. Uh, I, I won't be that negative. Um, they're talking about closing at the end of June this year. Yeah. But let's let's hope let's hope uh, with negotiations, common sense kicking in. Hopefully, alternatives can be found can be found uh, to keep the place and the facility open going forward. All right. Well, I'm looking at their statement here and uh, in front of me, Kieran, and it doesn't leave much hope for for optimism. But you look. Let's let's see what happens. I suppose. Well, look. Uh, if if we don't try, yeah. you know, yeah. we have yeah. to, we have to try. We have to explore the possibilities. And bear in mind, there's 31 families affected here now. You know, and and they have to be thought of in this as well, and supports proper supports need to be put in place for these going forward. All right, uh, Councillor Karen Burke, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you, Karen, and good morning to you. So, what now for the staff affected? Well, Owen Drummy is Unite Regional Officer, and he joins me now. Owen, good morning to you. Good morning, Brian, and uh, good to talk to you today. Was this a shock to the union? Was this a shock to your people? Yeah, I think given the circumstances, there had been no, I suppose, interaction with the company prior uh, to me being contacted towards the evening to announce that ultimately the board had decided that um, they were going to announce 
um, through a town hall with the staff on Friday that the, the closure would um, work the closure the operation down there uh, would cease at the end of June. Now, I suppose for given the circumstances um, and out of respect to, to to my members involved, um, it's 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 devastating news for all concerned, including the local the local community in Carrick and Shore. And I've just listened to Kieran Burke's contributions, and I welcome them. That we will engage in a process of consultation now with the company, and we expect that we can explore um, any alternatives that might be there, in addition to redeployment options. Mm. And, uh, and obviously, the most important thing is to maximise that uh, redundancy packages in the event that that, that is the case. Uh, tell me a little bit about the possibility for redeployment because I know the Cormorant and Loka, they, they have a site in Ballyragata, I think, don't they? They do, they do, and I suppose from a tier long perspective that they, they have 2,000 employees and they also have a number of um, production facilities um, across across Ireland as well. But again, that 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 will that will format um, the basis of discussion um, initially with, with the company. Uh, we will be holding a meeting this week Yes. Um, within the consultation process, um, and I suppose subsequent meetings will be will be scheduled in the coming weeks. Yeah, I, I, I'm just where, where the people working there are concerned. Are, are are they largely living locally, Owen? Oh, they are. Like as you've heard, there like it's, there's there's a lot of families there locally that have have, have attached to to, to Cormaloco, have been employed mm. um, over 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 the numerous decades that they've been there. They've been a good employer. Um, and I suppose that should be reflected um, in, in the talks that will now proceed. Um, not, notwithstanding, as, as I suppose, from everyone's perspective, that we're in the midst of a cost of living, what I deem an emergency. And that's a factor that's going to have to be incorporated into this discussion too, because everyone is burdened with um, additional financial pressures now. And I suppose our members getting, getting that news, that decision, um, that our jobs are gone. Um, it's going to it's going to cause um, extreme stress and anxiety to all concerned. Of course, it will indeed, particularly at the start of a, a brand new year as well. Owen, what what about the skills that these workers uh, have? I mean, is it transferable in some way? Well, it has to be. It has to be. They're experts. They're, they're, they're all long-standing employees. Mm. Um, we have we have a number of a number of our members that would be. Uh, working within the lab as technicians, you have the production side of it, so you you would you would expect um, that it would be appropriate within within the form of discussion that in the event that there are opportunities um, for redeployment, that our members will be red circled and given those opportunities going forward in the coming months. Yeah, and uh, the point that uh, Karen Burke was making there as well was that these are not low paid workers. I mean, these these are these are professionals. They are indeed. They are indeed. And they're good paying jobs, you know what I mean? So, look, I suppose, given 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 where we are now in this early days, mm. uh, and there's, there's a number of months, I know I know they've set the end of June, um, we, we don't know what, anything can happen between now and the end of June, of course, but uh, my priority at this stage is, is my members. Mm. Uh, and obviously, it's the members who will decide what's going to be acceptable going forward. Yes, but in, in your experience, Owen, I mean, if a company comes out and makes a, a very blatant statement saying, look, this is it, we're closing our production, we're closing it in, in the summer of this year, that is generally it, isn't it? It, it? it is, 
it is given the statement that they've put out. But again, we when we sit down and engage with the employer, they're going to have to be able to support that and substantiate that in what they're going to what they're going to discuss with us, what they're going to provide that supports this um, closure from the end of June. You know. Yes. And and because of the partnership with uh, Tier Lawn, are you surprised that maybe, you know, there wasn't more of a lead up to this and maybe more discussions and maybe more possibilities explored? Well, I, I, I've expressed my disappointment already um, to the company's HR that this has come out of nowhere. There have been no prior communication with any of the stakeholders involved concerning their, their members. Um, this, 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 as I said, was delivered Thursday evening, um, arising, arising from a board meeting that took place on the same day, and to call people in then on a Friday and deliver the devastating news that their, their jobs are going to be gone from the end of June, you know. So, again, look, with respect to everyone involved, and as I say, the, the necessary consultation period that now that will now commence, um, I can't really get into any specific details outside of what you already have. Yeah, but in your own statement, you, you make a very good point because, you're, you, again, you're speaking about Tier Lawn, the former Glanbia, and you, you point out that it has its roots in, in the cooperative uh, movement, yeah. you know, w- which was there to, to bo- booster uh, areas and lo- local areas and the like, you know? Yeah, indeed. But again, as I said, the emphasis now has to be, I suppose, Notwithstanding the impact now that this this has on, on the workers involved, their families, their futures, um, we need we, we need to we need to explore everything from 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 the specific I suppose purpose of the supports that are going to be required. If there's any additional retraining that may lead that they could be transferred to another another site, um, we'll welcome all of this. But again, until we sit down and have the have these talks, um, we don't know. At this, po- at this moment in time. Owen, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Good morning to you. Uh, yes. No thank Th- you. Thanks, Owen. Thank you. Bye-bye. You know, that's Owen Drummy there uh, of uh, the Unite um, uh, Union there. He's a regional officer. How do you feel about uh, that very, very shocking news and bad news for the caricature area and particularly for the 31 um, workers involved. 1800 The text and WhatsApp is 083 Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie 1800-938-007. Now, there was a brutal assault on a Garda in Dublin over the weekend where he had his finger almost completely bitten off during an altercation and uh, Garda responded to a call concerning an incident of dangerous driving in Ballymun at about half past 11 on Saturday um, where the incident occurred. The Garda Representative Association rep for Tipperary is Richard Kennedy who joins me now. Richard, good morning to you. Morning, Fred. Uh, good to talk to you today. A particularly vicious uh, assault on, on, on one of your members. Sadly, the latest in a, in a long line, uh, Richard. 
Oh, it is, friend. Assaults, assaults have become nearly a commonplace thing at, at this stage, friend, with, with across the country for the last number of years, with, with, the, with the stats on assaults rising every year, year on year. Like last year in 2022, there's 285 serious assaults on members last year. Wow. So you're, yeah. you're looking at it's basically it's a 20 percent increase year on year at, at the moment, friend. It, it, it just doesn't bear thinking about, really. And, you know, I mean, we're hearing about the difficulty of recruitment within the Gardaí and stuff, and you can understand why. Fran, if you were looking at, at applying for the guards at the moment and you see an assault like that one in Ballymun at the weekend, we had an incident in Valley Farmers a few uh, yeah. uh, recently as well. It, it is the kind of thing that that puts people off joining the guards, Frank, when you see these kind of headline assaults. Yeah, and what? where is it going wrong, do you think, Richard? What, what's happening out there that's uh, making it more dangerous than ever for, for your colleagues? Well, Frank, I suppose we, we spoke previously about, about uh, mandatory sentencing. That's only one factor. But it's the lack of, it's the lack of resources, Frank. It's, uh, the, the, the promise... Uh, recruitment of Gardaí by the government. We were promised in 2022 800 extra Gardaí delivered less than 300. 2023 has promised 1,000 Gardaí. I'd be surprised if we get to between three and 400. Like If you look this year, they, they had a big fanfare last week over 24 Gardaí coming through Templemore last yeah. week. Yeah. We got our personnel bulletin last Friday, friend. We get one once a month with transfers, retirements, etc. on it. And between resignations and and retirements there's 36 gone right. so we're down we're, we're down 12 already in the year so that cancels out really that cancels out. The, 20, the 24 that we saw on, on our news headlines is already gone we had 10 resignations again last Friday we're averaging we're averaging roughly two resignations a week yeah and uh, you know they're talking about boosting the number of guard trainees uh, to up to 1,000 um, you know, in a new recruitment drive, but I mean, from what we're seeing, that's that's not going to happen. No, Fred, they're not. They're, they, like we, we hear, we hear kind of secondhand information through people involved in the recruitment process and through the Garda College. Uh, the, the applicants aren't there, Fred. There's, we we hear about expressions of interest, but expressions of interest is someone just clicking on a website. It's not actually filling out the application form and and doing the doing the testing and and doing the interview process. And if if that was happening, the numbers would be coming through the gates and Templemore. The, the facility is there, but the, but the recruits aren't coming into it. Yeah, the conditions that some of your colleagues again working with. You know, I was I was showing shown the the situation in Clonmel Garda Station, for example. But nobody in the right mind would want to work there, Richard. Oh, friend, you you you. In fairness, to you, you've championed the cause of Clonmel Garda Station for a number of years. We're still no closer. We we have that lovely site blowing kicking barracks, and yeah. it's sitting there, sitting there idle. No, not even a, a sign, a sign of a, a, a sod turned on it. But like, it's the workload. The workload because we've less members. Of course, the workload increase increased on our members. Uh, Garda management rolled out a moder- uh, what they call a modernisation and renewal program. But all it has done is put members in front of computers longer. We've we've members doing files on their days off, and the workload becomes unsustainable to the stage where. Members are becoming stressed out. Members, younger members that have, they're coming into the guards with third level education. They're going back to what they were qualified to do in college. We've members taking up positions in other parts of the public sector because the the the, the workload that's in te- that's involved in the guardish economy these days is just too high for members. And when you saw that headline that the number of potential guard trainees uh, failing basic physical fitness tests is hampering 
the recruitment drive. I mean, what, what did you make of that? Like, but, but, but look, if you look at it, friend, the figure was was seventeen percent. If you if those seventeen percent uh, passed the test, if you look at it, uh, passed the physical test, if you look at last year, we we took on rough, roughly three hundred last year, so seventeen percent on top of that. It's only a, it's it's a, it's a minuscule figure. It's less than fifty. It's less than fifty yards. So it's it, it's a lot, it, there's a long way between fifty, fifty onto three hundred is three fifty. It's a long way from eight hundred right? right. So that as a headline really means very little, is what you're saying? To no, me. friend. So, so there's there's always a always traditionally through the recruitment process in Irish gone. There's always people that fail the physical. This is going on for uh, when I joined the guards over twenty years ago. People failed the physical, friend. Right, so but, Simon, but how is coming out with that? It, it's not really relevant to the larger picture here. No, it, it, it's 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 it takes away from the headline that people don't want to join in Garishy Khan at the moment, and people are and people are leaving in their droves. We were looking with, with like 109 resignations last year. It was 94 the year before, and I think in 2000, like you we go back to 2017, it was only 41, which was less than one a week. So we're we're, we're more than doubling in the space of four years. So the morale in the force then, uh, what is it like? The morale is on the floor. It's absolutely on the floor. Mem- members, and Garrity Connor, generally people they have have a good working atmosphere between themselves, Frank. But they're looking at the, the rising number of assaults, paying conditions. The, pub, the, pub, the private sector is a lot more attractive for people at this stage. The, work, the excess workload, we have a roster issue which is dragging on for three years now, friend. People don't know what they're going to be working in six months' time. If you don't know where you're where you're going, what shift you're going to be working in a few months' time, you can't. You have no predictability as regards childcare, whether you can afford to take a summer holiday. All these things are. It's it, the mental health of members is really affected by the ongoing crisis within the job, friend. Yeah, and there seems to be an issue as well with with uh, illness in the job and people out on long term illness uh, as well. We've, we we have a, we'd have a lot of members, friend, but it was long term injuries. Like uh, of those assaults I mentioned to you there, uh, the the two the the figures from from last year, like eighteen of those assaults had people with fractures, friend. So you know if you're if you're coming back from from an assault like with, with a broken bone, it's it's well and good being fit to walk around, but being fit enough to be go back on frontline policing are two different things, friend. And and if you like. Members, remember, there's the mental, there's the physical part of an assault, but there's also the, men, the mental course, side of it. Of course. If you're coming back from a serious assault, there is that. We, we've had studies done on it where there's high levels of, of post-traumatic stress within within Angarish economy. We had our own study carried out there a number of years ago. So these kind of things all factor into people, and it does result in in, in high levels of sick or long-term sick, where members are out for, for, for longer periods. And the rank-and-file guardie, um on in, in in the cars going around or on the beat or whatever, have, have you any say, or do you feel you have any say in the future of the force? Because, I mean, surely you should be listened to more than anybody else. Sometimes, friend, they do. They, they they occasionally roll out the surveys, and we see the results that come out. And a lot of members on the ground do, do, do be puzzled where they what guards they interviewed for these surveys because. The members on the ground, like we, we've given feedback in relation to some of the, the, the modernisation programmes they brought in into, into fact bits of it that aren't working, but we're still working with the same systems, friend. We have a, we have a case management system at the moment. Tipperary is one of the pilot divisions for it. And it's, it, it, it forces members to, be in front, members to be in front of a computer for half their working day. So if, if you have a situation where you're losing half of your day sitting in front of a computer, 
the, the service we're offering to the public is downgraded due to what they call modernisation, but sometimes modernisation is a backward step. That's very interesting to hear because, as you know, and it's no disrespect to yourself, Richard, we often have people making contact with the show and they're saying we don't see the Gardaí enough. They're not in our communities enough and all. But, I mean, then we hear that you're stuck in administration work. And, and, that's, the, and that's the way it is, Fran. It is, members are tied up. The, the, levels of, the levels of paperwork, have, uh, levels of paperwork, computer work, administration work, has increased dramatically over the last five to ten years. But our members... And if you could ask any guard, they would rather be out and about patrolling the, patrolling the streets, whether it be on the beach, driving patrol cars, meeting members of the public, community engagement, all these things members would rather be doing than sitting inside carrying out what are administrative tasks. They, they, they spoke again last week about... about about recruitment of, of Garda staff, which would be civilian members, to free up frontline Garda. And that's been they, going they, on for years, talk about that. They, they've rolled out this before, Fan, and said, oh, this is going to bring uh, members back onto the onto the, the frontline. We we have had a, a welcome addition of Garda staff in Tipperary, a dramatic increase in Garda staff in Tipperary, and could do with more. But it has freed up zero guards for frontline duties. A, a figure of zero in Tipperary, Fran. So that's, like, we've had a dramatic increase in Garda staff but it freed up no members. So they, they roll out this, this headline every two to three years, but it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually have a real effect on the numbers we have in the street. Richard, thank you so much for your time this morning. We wish you well. Thanks for coming on with me, Richard. No bother at all. Thank you. Bye-bye to you now. That's uh, Richard Kennedy there, who is the Garda Representative Association rep for Tipperary. It's very disappointing news, isn't it? You can understand why uh, morale within the force is, is poor, to say the very least. And it also explains, and as I say, so many people make contact with them, they're saying we wish we could see more Garda and all of that. And there's an explanation. I mean, they're caught up in all sorts of admin work and one thing or another. Uh, we'll take a break. Back with more. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Now, thousands attended marches across the country over the weekend in defiance uh, of the government's inaction in tackling the worsening hospital crisis. Now, sadly, the protests took place on uh, the weekend where a man in his 80s was attacked and killed while at the Mercy Hospital in Cork, again highlighting, I suppose, how dangerous A&Es have now become right across the country. Conor Reedy and Tanya uh, DeVito are members of Nina Needs It's A&E campaign and we're at the protest in Limerick and they both uh, join me now. Good morning to you, Conor. Good morning, Tanya. Hello, Fran. Uh, good, good, good to talk to you uh, both. Tanya, can I go to you first? Because before you handed over the mic in Limerick, you invited every single TD and politician to get involved and you invited them to join the fight. Did you get a reaction to that? Um, I got a reaction from the crowd, all right. Um, and you know, you know, we have uh, when we started the campaign, we did get in, get in touch with all the TDs and all the ministers and, and invited them to join us because we're ordinary people. We don't have the power to go into the doll and talk about this, but they do. So when I saw that there was uh, and I'm not going to name them out here mm. because we all know who they were, but mm. when I saw that there was people there that hasn't engaged with us and hasn't come out and said, 
we want to re- reinstate A&E's in Nina Ennis and St. John's. And my thought was, why are you here then? Why are you here? Because yes, because you said that publicly. If you don't Absolutely. believe in reinstating the A&E's, why are you here today? Why are you here? So why were they there, friend? But that's the question for them to answer. But I, we did invite them to join us, and we will continue to invite them to join us because this is what 11,000, more than 11,000 people that marched on Saturday, that's what they marched for, to reopen, reinstate, uh, A&E's in Nina, Ennis and St. John's, that's what it was all about. Connor, you spoke too, and of course you were able to speak from a personal point of view because of how your dad was treated, Connor. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I suppose I've told his story twice in a very public way at rallies, Fran, once in a, at a small kind of post-COVID rally in Ennis early last year. And I really spoke to a big mass of people and told his story on Saturday. He had a very traumatic last few weeks to his life thanks to the warped policies that have been implemented here in the Midwest by the HSE where he had a stroke in the brilliant when he was on respite in the brilliant St. Conlon um, community nursing home here in Nina. Um, he was taken by ambulance to Limerick, spent a couple of nights on the ED trolley, of course, in that, those horrendous conditions. And that was that was the month of July 2018. So that wasn't the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, moved up to the stroke ward in UHL because UHL is actually a fairly decent hospital once you get past the ED, past the gates. And he was in the stroke ward for a week or two, as long as that took back to Nina Hospital, um, you know, to his own hometown where we prepared him for to join my mother, uh, who was still with us at that stage, uh, to join her in the nursing home. And uh, then on one particular, I think it was the last Monday in August or something, uh, 2018, he was discharged to the nursing home. And within a couple of hours in there, the GP was back at his bedside because he was calling for God. He was choking. He had exacerbations. Um, He was in a very dire state. And um, he, the GP diagnosed him with pneumonia in nursing home at that point. Now, he had left Nina Hospital several hours earlier. Um, he was, the, we, we got back on, the family was all there, the GP, the nursing home staff. We got back on to Nina Hospital to ask them, uh, look, he, his, his bed is still warm. Can you take him back? He's, he's in a bad way. He's come here, you know, and he shouldn't be here. He needs medical help urgently. Um, Nina Hospital were forced to refuse to take him back because guess what, friend, the HSE had their protocol. Now, the sheets may not have even been changed on his bed in Nina Hospital at that point, but the protocol, the HSEs, don't make me swear, but their protocol dictated that the ambulance needed to come and take him right back to Limerick, um, where he had to go through the whole process all over again at 89 years of age uh, with the exacerbations, the the post-stroke kind of medical complications, if you will. He had to go. I I thought he was leaving us that night. I was with him in the resource unit in the ED. I made my peace with him. The next morning, he was back out in what I call the zoo part of the ED, 
Um, another week in the hospital uh, in UHL and then back to Nina where he finally, thankfully, did not pass on a trolley and he ended his life with dignity. But what he was put through during those weeks, Fran, was both ludicrous and unforgivable. And there's a lot of people listening right now who knew my father, who knew Johnny Reedy, and they knew exactly what he was, the gentleman he was. But guess what? Even if he was an old so-and-so, he didn't deserve that. Nobody deserves that. And Tanya, those stories, you know, multiple stories similar to Connor's story there, and, and I know you heard quite a few of them on on Saturday uh, as well. This goes back to 2009, Tanya, to that, that fateful decision to close Ennis and, and, and uh, Nina. When are we going to learn that this is not working, it has never worked, and we need to just rethink the whole bloody thing? You know, there's this sad thing about this is that when that young girl died in 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 UHL before yes. Christmas, um, myself and Connor uh, were having a chat about this, and I actually said, "Do you think this was this this is it now? This ha- something has to be done now after this. Surely they'll do something. There's been a death of a young girl. Surely something will happen, and nothing happened. And then we had the internal emergency on the second of January." And we thought again, surely they're going to sit down and go, right, we need to do something. It's been going on since 2009. And like you said, the stories we heard, like we heard Connor's story, uh, we yes. heard uh, Melanie Cleary's story. We, we've heard, we've heard the, well, the, the stories, friend, that people who don't want to tell their story, but there's other stories there. Yes. But it, this is, it, it, like after Saturday, after Saturday's protest, when we saw the sheer volume of people walking down O'Connell Street. Like, it was it was absolute, it was a force of, I, I don't even know how to describe it and to be part of it. And Connor will tell you, to be part of something like that was just so uplifting because it's not just us. It's not just Nina Needs Zaney. It's not just Save Ennis Hospital. It's not just the Midwest campaign who are calling for this. It's every single person. It every was very emotional. Person. It was very yeah, emotional. It was, okay. yeah. uh, we're talking 11,000 people, and I think that even might be an underestimate <clears throat> of, of, of the crowd yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, but, Connor, it's, it's all fine and very well, but even so far after a couple of days, what are you hearing back from that? I mean, this is people power at its very best, but will it work? Well, we are talking about the HSE and the Department of Health, probably two of the most immovable. Um, objects in the entire government government bureaucracy of this country. Uh, I mean, they don't do reform, mm. Fran. They mm. have proven that to us. They don't do the learning of lessons because if they did, they wouldn't be trying to repeat the process up in Navin mm. um, where people have been out marching as well. I, I find that incredible that they, <laughs> yeah. they have not learned anything from mm. this chaotic well, mess. We've been talking, our campaign, not myself and Tanya personally, but our campaign across the Midwest, we've been in communication with the Save Navin Hospital campaign mm. and we've been telling them. They don't need us to tell them, they know it. I mean, our previous incarnations of our campaign knew back in 2009 that this was going to be a disaster. But we've mm. been telling Navin now, please, 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 don't let this happen. Spare your communities a decade and more of pain because that's all that's in store for you if you let this happen. Um, so we have this little 
uh, olive branch, very, very uh, light olive branch thrown to us in the case of opening uh, a um, medical assessment mm. unit. Mm. Uh, th- th- you know, on reflection, Fran, and they're hoping to do the same in Nina, unless, we said this last week to you, unless they're resourced and there's no uh, talk of further resourcing them and op- opening them up even further with new beds and new staff, Unless they do that, that's not even going to work either. We need to break through. I don't know what the breakthrough is. Um, they, what Tanya's right, what happened on the street in Limerick was so emotional. If we could tell all the stories were told, um, it would turn the hair on your neck. It really would. But we have to break through. Somebody, somewhere, Fran, has to take on the HSE. I'm convinced We've had a disastrous tranche of uh, government uh, hate, uh, ministers for health mm. going back probably close to, I think, since at least Mary Harney's time, who I think was, was the Queen Bee was the worst, frankly, did more damage than most. Um, but that's my personal opinion. Um, we have had a line of failed health ministers that makes me convinced that they have absolutely no control. They have no say. Once they get under mm. the sea, the the, the director of the general of the Department of Health and heads of the HSE. They are puppets. I really, really do believe that. But we're going to need some strength from inside our political system uh, to stand up, to stand up to these people. Um, it's it, it, The account, the lack of accountability within the HSE and the Department of Health is staggering. But Fran, when we only have, I'm not, as Tanya said, we're not naming names today, but when we have only one out of five Tipperary TDs who showed up to that protest last Saturday, we're we're on our own here in Tipperary. There's no question about o- that. Only one TD showed up? Only one TD. I might as well name him. It was Michael Lowry. And he did approach me afterwards and we did, we did a good chat and we'll hopefully engage again. But only one, yeah. Um, right. and, so and, and you're you're sure that's of that? To my Connor, knowledge, that's you're... to our knowledge. Okay. That's to our knowledge, and we do that's stand corrected. Right. Well, yeah. if if that's if that's, that's incorrect, we'll be uh... happy to correct that. Okay. If it, okay. Yeah, okay. Shane Morris, of course, our great councillor here in Nina Independent, yeah. has been with this since the previous incarnation of the campaign back and in two thousand and nine. Yeah. Tanya, what what is next? Because I mean, you're not going to leave it at that. No. Day, so. Yes. Good God, no, we are not leaving this, friend. This is this is not. This is only, as I said on Saturday. We're not going away. This is only the beginning. Uh, we're going to take a couple of days break now because mm. it's been uh, it's been a lot of work on yes. to organise emotionally as well. I would imagine. Oh, Tanya. God. Yeah. Listen, my daughter was here the other night. Ma'am, please just stop, just stop. Yeah. Turn off your phone and just stop. Yeah. So we're taking a few days break. Uh, we're all going to meet up next week, and the plan is we will be getting in touch with all regional CDs, ministers, Limerick, Clare, Tipperary. And uh, we're going to be then uh, asking the public to come on board with us. Not sure what the details are yet, but as soon as we know, Fran, we'll be letting you know because we need the people. We need the people behind us. We need the people in power to join us and believe us. And if they don't want to do that, let us know and we'll... We'll, we'll carry on without you. Yeah, Connor, because I can't think... I, I'm, I'm wondering what the next step will be. I mean, do you see yourself getting more militant in some way? And I mean that now with a small M. But do you, <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? Do you, do you see yourself getting more um, in your face with the HSE and with the department? Well, whatever form that takes, and as you say, militant with a small M, I think we have no choice, Fran. Yeah, yeah. Because what is the alternative? 
there, there is no nobody is offering a, a, an actual alternative to where we are. We are consistently the worst performing hospital group of all the hospital groups in Ireland. We are the most the most in permanent crisis, and it's it it, it, it again yes. The campaign is going to have to sit down if change does not come. And we're not talking long-term change, 96 beds in three years' time, but if you're having yourself. Um, We need long-term, tangible, strong plans that can be put in place. We need reversal of the shocking and disastrous 2009 plan where the experts got it so wrong. Mm. But yes, we, we are going to have to sit down as a campaign and say, okay. What next? Because we don't have a choice, Fran. The stories are continuing. Mm. It's not what Johnny really went through in 2018 and people before him for years and after him. That is still happening. It's still going on. And, it, and, 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 and just because, uh, as usual, I, I'm just a little late, lads, yep. and heading towards news. But Tanya, are you in any doubt that people are dying because of this? Fran, we know people are dying from this. Right. We know people are dying. Connor knows people are dying oh, from yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. We've met people on Saturday that have family that have died because of this. So it's not, it's, this is going to happen again. It's not going to end unless right. something drastic is done. Conor Reedy and uh, Tanya DeVito, thank you both uh, for coming on with Cheers, me this friend. morning. Thanks and congrats thank on, you, on what, what went thank down you, over friend. the weekend. Thank you. News and information is on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Pant and uh, welcome back to the second hour of Tip Today. 1800-938-007 is our free phone number. Huge response to uh, Tanya and uh, to Connor speaking to us there about the protest in Limerick, about uh, the health services and the state of the hospitals and all of that. Um, and many congratulations coming in uh, to them both uh, as well. Uh, we'll be following that story, needless to say. I was speaking of stories. I was really, really taken by a Facebook post uh, from Mary Corbett, and she posted uh, a lovely tribute to her dad, who was killed in the mine in Ballingarry in 1958. And we were so much taken with it um, that we invited Mary into studio, and she was kind enough to accept our invitation. She's with me now. Mary, good morning to you. Good morning, friend. And lovely to see you today. And thanks so much for coming into us, no uh, Mary. As I say, I was really, really uh, taken with it. What, what age were you, Mary, when your dad was killed? I was six and a half. And and you tell me that you can remember it extremely vividly. Vividly. Yeah. vividly. What happened on that fateful day, Mary? My dad left for work at half past eight in the morning. And uh, Saturday work was overtime. Right. And he always did it for the extra few bob because there was seven of us. With seven, Mum had seven children. And um, at half past one... My aunt, Lizzie, and my uncle, Peter, and a man called Paddy Gleeson, who was one of Dad's friends, arrived outside the gate, and I noticed that my aunt and uncle were crying. And I thought, God, what's wrong? So, of course, 
kids weren't allowed to listen to adult conversations. Yeah. So we were hushed out. And my aunt obviously broke the news to my mother. And then my uncle Peter sat me up on his knee and he said, your poor daddy is dead. And can you remember how how you, you took that, Mary? Shock. Yeah. Dead. To me, people died when they got old. My father was only 46 years old. My God. And in my childish mind, my dad was still working in the mines. But he was actually dead. Do you know how he, how he died, Mary? He you? went into a road. For what reason, we've never found out. Um, some would, I think, and I think it might be the reason, that he went in to go to the toilet. Right. But it was a road with no air. Oh, my God. And he suffocated. And my mother's brother was working with him the same day and he went in to look for him and he was overcome as well. But luckily he survived. Right, and these are the gases that are down in uh, the mine. Yeah. How, how many children did your mother... Seven, was it? Seven. My God. The oh oldest my. was 23. and No, the oldest two were at that stage, gone to England. Yes. The oldest was 23 and the youngest was my brother, Seamus, who lives in the Commons in Ballingarry, and he was a year and 11 months. So Seamus has no memory of him, I no. guess, does he? No. Yeah. But there was five of you that there your was. mother had to five look after us, that. Yes. And overnight, the breadwinner... Was gone. Was gone. Was gone. And how did she manage, Mary? With great difficulty, but I always say... If my mother was Minister for Finance, the country wouldn't be in the state to think. So she was great she to look after the budget. And she was an absolute yeah. gem. She looked after us. We may not have had much, yeah. but we were always well-fed, well-dressed. She always looked after us. She was. On, how much did you tell me she was on at that point? She was, she was getting £2.13 shillings a week. That was widow's pension? That was widow's pension for herself and five children. And was she ever looked after by, by the, the mining company? Uh, or? She was. In later years, she got a few pounds compensation, and I mean a few pounds compensation. But she spent all that on us, educating us, because that was Dad's wish, that his children would be educated. He certainly didn't want anybody he, to no, go down the mine. No, no, no. One of my brothers did work in it for a very short time, and then he went to England as did five of the seven emigrated. It's incredible. Which must have been hard on my mother too. It must have been incredibly hard indeed. And she, when life could be good to her then and we were all grown up and we were all able to fend for ourselves, she got Alzheimer's. Oh, did she? Hmm? That must have been very hard for you all. It was hard, but as I get older, I think... Maybe God was being merciful that she couldn't remember yes. the life that she had had. And did she always keep your dad's memory alive? Oh, yes. Did she? Very much so. And um, I can remember the night before he was killed, on the Friday night, my dad was a beautiful singer. And he was singing. I can remember every song he sang. And we were having a sing-song. And my brother, who is in Canada, 
he had a beautiful voice as well. And I remember my dad taking a ten-shilling note out of his pocket, handing it to my brother and saying, look, uh, I'll give you a few bob every week now and you buy an accordion, he said. He said, because you have a good voice, you can make money. Right. And later on, when my brother went to England and he was the Donal Ring, Cayley Band, were playing somewhere. And he happened to be at the dance and someone told the Donal Ring crowd that he was a good singer. Mm. They asked him up to sing and they asked him to join the band. Are you serious? But he wouldn't. Wow. Wow. And they were big stars at that time, weren't they? Yeah. And he got that opportunity, but he turned it down. And then he later went to Canada. It's incredible. And did he go on to play the accordion? Like no. no, didn't no. he? All no. right, yeah. Well, he said to Dad, No, you need that worse than me. And I remember my dad, when he'd get, his, get paid on a Friday night, and he had a sister that lived down the road who died very young, and she had three young children, mm. and he used to send my sister down with 10 shillings to her every week. So he was very generous. Even though we had yeah. nothing ourselves, but he still looked after her. You were telling me, and I, I gather it saddens you, that, you know, while you have memories, you can't remember his, his face, is that it? No. Yeah. Uh, and you see, the thing is, we don't even have a photograph of him. Do you not? No, because uh, years later, our house was burned to the ground. Oh, my God. And all the bits... His miners' bits, and they were all gone. Right. You know all the tools he used and everything. Else you, and your mother kept all of that. Oh yes, she, she yeah. had them all, up on top of her wardrobe. Oh lord! And everything was gone. Even my mother's wedding ring was burned in the fire. My God, uh, what what a great disaster that was, as well as everything else. Tell me about the community among, like, the, the miners' wives. They they must have been very strong. They were strong women, were they? Women. remarkable women like I can remember my dad and all the rest of the miners coming home and they used to remind me of panda bears because all you saw was the whites of their eyes they were black from the cold they were black from head to toe and when I think back there was no washing machines the women had to wash those clothes by hand and get the cold out of them it was a horrendous life, but it was the only thing open to anybody. Like, it was either that, or emigrate, or go working with a farmer. And that was it. It was The mines was the, the centre of the parish. There was nothing else. As well as your dad, other people lost their lives as well, Mary. Yes. What, what do you uh, remember of that? There was a young chap, he was from Cork, don't know the name, and his very first day going down in the mine, he slipped and fell to his death. And then there was a family, uh, three brothers, Ivers was their names. Um, there was an, ex- some kind of an explosion. They were all on the same shift. And two of them killed. And the other one was, uh, lost his sight. My God. And... I can recall Peter O'Donnell, he was killed in it. And then there was a man called Mr. Gannon. Mm. I think he was a foreman or he was... But I never knew him as anything only Mr. Gannon. He was drowned one night. 
when a road flooded. And when you say a road, and you mentioned that a couple of times, you're talking about some sort of corridor underground. underground. Is that it? Yeah. 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 A road that they would have made blasted, and it flooded, and he was drowned. And were they aware of the danger every day that they were facing? They were, and when I later read the inquest on my father's death, uh, the doctor had advised him about a month beforehand to come back up and work overground because he had what was called... Miner's lung, was it? Yes, yeah. He was It was emphysema, I think they called it now, was that it? And he was just developing it. But he wouldn't come back up because there was a bit more pay down and he had seven children to look after. Even though it was going to damage his health long term. Yes, any anyone that lived that were weren't killed or anything in the mines, they got a slow lingering death. I remember my neighbour down the road, Paddy Grant, he gave years not able to catch his breath. And several more. Um Joe McHenry comes to mind, um, Michael Butler, Sean Lyons. They all got slow, lingering deaths from the coal dust. From inhaling the coal mm-hmm. dust. And, of course, people didn't know enough about it at that stage no. to, to protect themselves yes. in some ways, was no. with masks. Or well, there, was no, there was no health and safety in those days. You know, it's not like today. You do manual lifting, you do health and safety. There was nothing. Like, none of that. You went down and you worked and that was it. Yeah. And it was up to yourself to look after yourself. We spoke about the wives, but they, I, I think they were remarkable men. Absolutely. I mean, to go down underground yeah. like that. And My hundreds of feet down in the ground. Go down at half past eight in the morning. You don't see daylight again until half past four in the evening. It was, it was oh, a terrible way to make a living. But it was the only choice. Of course. Do you ever try to tell young people nowadays about about that experience? Because They'd laugh at you. Yeah. You know, they, they, they wouldn't believe that people... And, and like, everybody in the... Practically everybody in the area worked in the mines. Mm. But if I tried to tell my children or my grandchildren now, they wouldn't have a clue. That these people took their lives in their hands every single every day. Every single day. And I think about it now and I think, God... When he went out to work in the morning, my mother must have been terrified all day, wondering would he come back home. My God. And that never crossed my mind. Like, as a child, of course, it wouldn't cross your mind. But now that I look back on it, and I can remember when my aunt had broken the news to her, and, of course, she was sobbing her heart out, and all she was saying was, my poor Jim... What am I going to do without my poor Jim? And then she gave two years after he died sick. She was in and out of hospital and in and out of hospital. And it's only now I realise that she probably had a nervous breakdown. I'm sure she had. Sure, She was broken hearted, I yes. suppose, Mary, yeah. She was. And five of her children then had to emigrate. Uh, all five of them went to England first then one went to America and one went to Canada. And, of course, in those days, I guess they weren't coming back every six months or oh something, God, like no. that, were they? No. You might see them for two weeks in the year. Yeah. So a lot of people in the area, to this day, still think there's only me and Seamus. 
because we were the only two that stayed at home. And and the age gap was there uh, yes. as well. Yeah. They were certain sure. You know, when you say, oh, there were seven of us. Oh, I thought it was only you and Seamus. It's amazing, you know, the way people... Right. I suppose they went to England and that was it. And there was no question of anybody else for her. Jim was, no, no, Jim no. was the, no. the memory there all she the time. She devoted yeah. her life to her children. And when her children were grown up and able to fend for themselves and she, life could have been good for her, she got Alzheimer's. It's, it's so and unfair, isn't it? she gave 11 years. Um, well, seven years. I looked after her for seven years when she was really bad. And then she got so bad that she had to be put in somewhere because she was a danger to herself. And she lived for four, 11 years altogether, she had it. And did she not know you for, for a large amount no. of that time, Mary? No. I used to go in to see her and at that stage I had two children myself. Mm. And... I had a girl and a boy, Orla and Cahill, and she used to think Orla was me, and she used to think Cahill was Seamus. She hadn't a clue. One of the nurses said to me one day, um, Mary, are you Mary's only child? Mm. And I said, no, there's seven of us. And she said, well, you're the only one I see coming in, but I was the only one around. Yes, of course. And uh, she said... Mary told us she was never married. I said she was and had seven children. But she just couldn't remember. And as I said, sometimes I think she was better off that she couldn't remember. Do you think that the trauma of losing her husband... uh, Yes. I asked the doctor about it and he said it can be caused by all the trauma she had in her life. Like, first of all, losing dad... Then the house burning down. You know, she had a lot of troubles in her life. And you see, she had no sister. Right. She had five brothers who were all gone away as well. And she was basically on her own. Her father was dead. Her mother was old. And she was... Now, we had wonderful, wonderful neighbours. And they all looked out for us and they all... Helped, and you were telling me off air that all the miners' wives—they were close. Where were they married? They they supported yes, each other. Yes, they did. And, yeah. They did. Like it, it was. There was no washing machines, and if you saw the clothes that they had to wash Can by hand, imagine, yeah. Not just for their husband, but for all their children as well. They were remarkable women. Weren't they just indeed? You're going to have to write a book on it all, Mary. Uh, I don't think so, Brian. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> you, you were also telling Emma, I know, that there there is um, a museum, isn't there? There is, yeah. in the Commons. Yeah. In in the old schoolhouse in the Commons. Yeah. Where all the artefacts are and right. the history of the mines. And but you can get a sense of what it was like, what I suppose, was like. to, to some degree. It was terrible. Like, you see pictures of them lying on their side with up on what I would call a wall but it was called a topple. And water running down, and they had a, this tool they had was called a jigger. So they jigged out the coal. And they're using this thing. Lying while on while the, lying on their back? Yeah. My God. And then sometimes they'd have to lie on their front and work it down between their feet, and the coal would fall down between their feet. And then the guys underneath would load it into the 
crates. It was a horrendous life. Remarkable men and women, Mary. Yes, that's, that's and women. Uh, for sure. The women are kind of forgotten, but they were every bit as, as remarkable as the men. Well, Mary, I'm delighted you could come into us because, as I said, I was so taken with your post. I mean, it's 65 years ago at this point, isn't it? 65 yeah. years. But, but still, even though you were six and a half, still, you still yes, remember. I can still vividly remember the day. Mary, it was lovely to see you. And the thing about it was, I never saw my father dead because the coffin was closed. I, I can remember the woman down the road bringing me up by the hand, taking me into the room, and she said, who's in there? And I said, Daddy. And I thought, why is the Daddy in a wooden box? And children weren't allowed to go to funerals in those mm. days. Mm. So I wasn't at his funeral. It, it was... It's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that lives with you. Yeah. You know. Mary, it was lovely to see you. Thank you so much for Thank coming you in to very me, Mary. Much, we Frank. really, really appreciate it. Thank you and good morning to you. We'll take a break. Back with more. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecone, you can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today 067-24111 or slatterysgarage.ie And you're very welcome back. Sally was on to us to say brilliant uh, to listen to Mary Corbett uh, this morning and I know that Patrick was on to us on uh, uh, WhatsApp to say lovely to listen to Mary and a very, very powerful story and God bless her, says uh, Patrick on 083 Just a quick mention, I was in the Doro in uh, the lovely hotel in Doro last night with uh, Joseph and uh, with uh, Joan. Great, great turnout to, to the gig, but so many Tipperary people there as well. It was lovely to meet uh, Barbara Hearn for the first time. Barbara, originally from uh, Feathert, and uh, lovely Monica was there, and Junie and Nula and all the gang. And sure, we had mighty crack and lots of lots of gossip and crack as well. I can tell you. Time now for global politics, and uh, delighted to be joined as usual on a Monday by economics and. Politics student uh, Thomas Conway. Thomas, good morning to good you. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you today. You, you're going to start with uh, Yemen. It's it's not the, the war there, the troubles there, the conflict there. It's not on our front pages anymore. It's not on our front pages. It is it has kind of slipped under the radar in yeah. recent months. Now, there was a brief ceasefire in the past week, and I suppose that got me thinking, well, maybe I should have a look at this conflict because any conflict in the Middle East can be quite confusing. They tend to be what are known as proxy wars. Sure. Uh, that's that's essentially the name for when another country uses I suppose external forces two countries to fight one another and Yemen is your quintessential example of a proxy war. Now it's a small country on the Arabian Peninsula around 33 million people so it's significant population but over the past 6 to 7 years it has become just the site of persistent military conflict, untold civilian suffering. I mean, the war has pulverised the place. You know, it has damaged infrastructure. It it has resulted in what could be described as one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. So very serious repercussions. Mm. And there are multiple reasons. So as I say, the conflict is isolated within Yemeni borders, but really and truly 
it's part of a major power struggle in the Middle East between the two most dominant powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Both are backing forces. There's a Saudi-led coalition on one side. On the other side, there are the Houthi rebels, which are backed by the Iranians. So it's very important to understand that rivalry when it comes to the Middle East. And this is a, a, an important part. This is a crucial part. There are two main <laughs> branches of Islam, Sunni and Shiite. Saudi Arabia has a population which is predominantly Sunni. Iran has a population which is mainly Shiite. So that is one dimension of the geopolitical rivalry. Now, there are other factors, mm. you know, there are, you know, financial and, and military factors, but that is just one, I suppose, dimension of the, the dichotomy between both countries and yes. one of the reasons for the conflict. The, the, the colonies, I guess, would, would play into this in some way as well, yeah. Yeah, and we have to look at the history of, of Yemen because it is a country which has long struggled with kind of regional and cultural differences. It had been separated. The modern Yemenite state was established in 1990 following the unification of the US-backed Yemenite Republic and Saudi-backed in the north and then the Soviet-backed People's Democratic Republic. So a man named Abd Ali Abdullah Saleh, a military officer, he assumed power in 1978. But from the year 2000 onwards, the country was just rocked by internal divisions. Terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda began to operate in the region. So really, the situation prior to the onset of this current conflict was very volatile, very unstable. Then in the years leading up to 2015, uh, a, a number of factors, I suppose, widened the pre-existing tensions. There was a series of fuel price hikes imposed by the government. That created a lot of acrimony, a lot of bitterness towards the, uh, towards the incumbent government. And it eventually resulted in, uh, I suppose, an outbreak of tension, an outbreak of violence mm. in 2014. And just in terms of how bad it is, are we talking hunger, disease? We're talking hunger. We're talking a huge civilian death toll. Uh, we see we, people will be familiar with pictures of the bombings and the explosions and the, I suppose, the devastation it has caused to infrastructure. But it has also devastated many, many lives. And as you can imagine, it has wrecked the Yemeni economy. Mm. So very, very serious repercussions. Mm. And displacement of people as well, Tom? Displacement of people, yeah. Displacement of people. People have been forced to flee and I suppose that feeds into the wider refugee crisis in the Middle East. The migrant flows from the Middle East out towards countries like Turkey. We might talk about Turkey next mm. week but they have been forced to shelter many migrants. So has Europe. But at the heart of this conflict is a group known as the Houthi rebels. And they I suppose are the uh, the rebel outfit backed by Iran who are fighting against the government. They're also backed by Hezbollah, which is another, I suppose, Iranian ally. It operates predominantly in, Le in Lebanon. Yes. Uh, and of course, we'll be familiar, unfortunately, with the, the death of Sean Rooney recently. Sure. The Irish military officer out there, uh, he, uh, he was ostensibly killed by a member of Hezbollah. So they are backed by Iran, the Houthi rebels on one side, then on the other side, you have a coalition of, gov I suppose, a government coalition, which is backed by a number of Western states and Saudi Arabia. The US, Britain, Germany, France have all given their backing and have come in for a lot of scrutiny because I suppose things have not gone well, in particular for Saudi Arabia in this conflict. Uh, like we... 377,000 people that's one estimate on the the number of people wow. killed so a huge death toll 
and a lot of the Western countries have come in for huge scrutiny. The picture is further complicated then by a multitude of terrorist organisations in the region. Al-Qaeda, as I mentioned, are operating an offshoot of Islamic State still there. Now, there was a temporary ceasefire last year, but I mean, it proved to be transient. As I said, slightly taunt intentions over the past week or so, but it has remained uh, very unstable. Brutal fighting on either side. 2023 virtually guaranteed to bring more fighting. So it's a really a dire situation in the country. I can't really put a positive slant in it as much as I would wish to. It is a. It is a. And it's hard to see an end to, to this. Is that? It's what you're very saying, hard to see an yeah. end inside. And I think for as long as that geopolitical rivalry between Saudi and Iran, I really want to hammer home this yeah. point. As long as that geopolitical rivalry endures the conflict in Yemen will probably endure. That is the sad thing. Are there natural resources that could be exploited in some way? Is there? Somewhat similar to a lot of the Middle East. It does have, uh, I suppose, uh, resources which it can draw upon. But I mean, they have failed to tap these resources, like a lot of the countries in the Middle East, like a lot of the countries in Africa, which we've spoken about previously. There is relatively good economic potential in the country, in the region, but just a failure to exploit it. And that has been a trend down through the years. And for as long as this conflict uh, persists, you would imagine it would be very hard to make any economic dividend from those those assets. Talk to me about this Wagner group. Is it pronounced Wagner or Wagner? Yeah, Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. Wagner. Yeah. I think I think both both pronunciations are okay. Yeah, it's 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 a band of mercenaries, isn't it? Russian Russian mercenaries. They're a band it? of Russian mercenaries. Russian, you know, what in past times would be known as warriors. They're essentially military contractors, and they have operated over the past few years in various regions. They are now heavily influencing Putin's war on Ukraine. I wanted to take a look at just who are this Wagner group and and why has Vladimir Putin invested his trust in them. So essentially, yeah, they're a band of Russian mercenaries. They're led by a millionaire businessman known as Yevgeny Prigozhin. So he has kind of a reputation for brutality. The group has a reputation for unimaginable brutality and they have committed many kind of unspeakable acts, including war crimes, they're now playing a leading role in the war. Their mercenaries are thought to make up about 10% of Russian forces. Now, prior to this war, they were quite a small band of band of fighters. They only had about 5,000. They've launched a major recruitment drive in the past, I suppose, five to six months. And who are these uh, soldiers? Who are these mer- mercenaries? Initially, they would have been, I suppose, highly trained former army officers, elite trained. Now... A lot of the a lot of the membership is composed of prison recruits who would have formerly been in prison and have, in exchange for freedom, have opted to fight with the Wagner Group. So you know there was even a, a an astonishing story last week about a man called Andrei Medvedev who escaped following what you know what he witnessed in Ukraine. He had been fighting with the Wagner Group. He eventually escaped across. I think it was the uh, the Norwegian border. Uh, made a dramatic escape, fled Russian forces, and you would imagine that will he will be a huge asset to intelligence mm. forces. And uh, is he claiming war crimes? Oh, he's claiming war crimes. He's claiming all sorts of of atrocities. I mean, to give you an idea, Wagner is supposed to have been partly responsible for those horrible scenes we saw in Bucha. That was the suburb of Kiev last last spring, in which we had all kinds of atrocities perpetrated against civilians. So. 
you know, they really are unimaginably brutal. But in the past few months, they've adopted a much higher profile. They're now moved, they've moved into a, a large new headquarters in St. Petersburg. They're openly advertising on billboards. So to an extent, they have kind of professionalised and they've styled themselves in the Russian media as a patriotic organisation, no less, which is fighting for the greater good and of who, Russia. Who has jurisdiction over them? I mean, the, the army doesn't have jurisdiction over them. No, they're separate from the army. They're an so autonomous group. So who's directing group. them, Thomas? The man, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and he, is, he has been nicknamed as Putin's chef because one of his companies once provided uh, catering services to the Kremlin. But he seems to be the man in control of these operations. He had previously denied any links, but he now openly promotes the the organisation, speaks about it with kind of a degree of pride. So he is the man at the helm of all this. But we have to take a look at the kind of the trajectory of the group over the past couple of years. They've been operating for some time. They first began explicitly helping Russia during the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. People will be familiar with the, the mention of Little Green Men, sure. which were the, the Russian, I suppose, the Russian proxies in the region. Wagner were part of that group. Now, they also operate in various other countries. There are Wagner, Wagner mercenaries in Syria, supporting the forces loyal to General Khalifa Haftar. The Central African Republic is another country, Mali in West Africa. And Sudan, uh, it's supposed to be guarding gold mines in Sudan. So you can you can see this isn't just uh, a group associated with the Russian conflict. They they have a much broader berth, I suppose, and they operate in far more different right. areas. But their brutality is legendary at this. Their point. brutality is profound, you know, and and that is reinforced by, I suppose, will be reinforced rather by the testimony of of that soldier, Andrei Medvedev. Yes. I suspect he will reveal all kinds of gruesome details. The thing is, because they're professional soldiers, a lot of them are quite experienced. Now, not the new prison recruits, but I suppose the the initial band of fighters would be quite experienced. So they probably have been quite effective in terms of how they operate. They're quite efficient. And that is one of the reasons Putin has been so attracted to them. And another aspect of the group relates to their salary, which is worth mentioning. These people are paid far more than, I suppose, the average Russian wage. It is attractive. If you are a former military officer, a retired military officer, it is an attractive way to make ends meet because there is a handsome salary there. Uh, and, you know, if you know you're, if you have military skills or anything like that, there is, I suppose, an innate attraction to join the group. It's a, it's a fascinating story. It, it, it really is. But, uh, you know, for people who have to suffer at their hands, this is... Uh... Well, that is the thing. And Ukraine obviously has launched an incredible resistance against them. But I suppose that outlines, you know, you think in this day and age we had kind of moved past these mercenary organisations. But that is the reality. And as I say, this group, not just operating in Russia, but operating beyond those confines in Africa and places across the world, across the Middle East, and across Africa. So, you know, they mm. pose a serious and, and just, threat. Just finally, is there any sort of irritation between the rank and file of the normal soldier and these guys, is there? Uh, the, you know, that's a question I'm probably not qualified to answer. I'm not entirely sure, but you would imagine, you would imagine there is some kind of tension because if you're a Russian military officer, you see this this group, it's completely autonomous, independent. It does what it likes. It's supposed to be... Uh, 
guarding gold mines in various different mm. countries. It, to an extent, it's a financial organisation. But Putin has obviously come to rely yeah. on it. He's given it his backing. Uh, ju- just what I'm curious about is that, you know, where, where tactics of war uh, is concerned, I mean, they must they must play some part in an overall plan, if you know what well, I mean. Well, they must be integrated into yeah. Russia's military military framework somehow. I would imagine so. I would imagine, like, I would imagine they're being paid handsomely to do the job that they're doing in in Crimea and in, in eastern eastern Ukraine at the moment. So, I mean... And that is, you know, the part which relates to money as well, which has to be recalled. So, you know, a very, it's a confusing picture, but the the end result, they are a brutal organisation. And that is, I suppose, what people have to bear in mind. Yeah, when when you talk about them emerging from the prisons and all of that, it, 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 I can't help but make the comparison to the Black and Dans, I suppose. Uh, yeah, there is, I suppose, uh, a parallel uh, between it's, them, it's, definitely. It's worth thinking about that. Um, you have to speak about uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, uh, today. Um, she doesn't have enough in the tank anymore? Yeah, she's decided to, uh, we're all familiar with it now, she's decided to resign following almost six years at the helm of government tonight. You know, I'm writing here, she dazzled the world, really, mm. with her, her compassion and kindness and her exemplary leadership through some of New Zealand's most difficult moments in recent times. You had, obviously, the COVID pandemic. Now, she was scrutinised for the kind of zero COVID policy imposed, but you also had the Christchurch bombings, that horrible mass shooting. You had the earthquake uh, in one of the New Zealand islands. I mean... She has presided over a series of crises and is seen to have performed very well in each instance. She's mm. she's now 42. She rose to power at the age of 27, became the youngest female head of government in the world. And just a year later, of course, and people will know this, she'd become the only, only the second woman ever to give birth while in office after former Pakistan leader Benazir Bhutto in 1990. So, you know, she holds a lot of different records. So where did it all go wrong? Because she began to lose support uh, very quickly, did she not? She did, she did. And she has been she's been widely criticised because of that. Her Labour Party has declined in the polls and some people have attributed that to, I suppose, the fact that so much of their popularity was staked solely on her. You know, mm. you think a you think of figures of Red One Piece, you know, making a, a parallel between figures like Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders. When you stake so much on one person, when you stake the fortunes of an entire party on one person, you always run the risk of them underperforming. You always the risk run the risk of them mm. lo- or, uh, exiting the stage, which is exactly what she's done. But I have to hammer home the point. I mean, she was quite a... You know, she had quite a storied political career. Mm. She worked, she went to university. She comes from a Mormon family, first of all. Oh, does she? Yeah, now she left the Mormon church in 2005 over their stance on gay rights. So, you know, she's she's not a member anymore, but came from a Mormon background in, I think, southern New Zealand, went through university, worked in the prime minister's office in New Zealand, and then served in the UK cabinet office during the transition from Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. So, you know, quite a quite a distinguished, I suppose, could we say diplomatic career prior to her political her political pursuits. Right. She then but, came but home. Liberal. It's very liberal. Very, very, liberal. Very, I very think that is the that yeah, is, that yeah. that is the thing to emphasize. I, I suppose a lot of but a lot of questions have been asked, you know, what does this reg- resignation people have been reading into it? What does it signal for women in politics? I mean, 
is it indicative of the strain which uh, which politics places on working mums? Now you could you run the risk of maybe running or reading too far into mm, it. Mm. You know, it could be that, and I think this is the case that Jacinda Ardern was Jacinda Ardern was simply kind of tired and worn out mm. by the whole travails of being Prime Minister. But is there not a grouping within New Zealand that feels strongly about the the profundity of the lockdown, the way she she orchestrated it, and the damage it did to, to, to business and the economy? Well, that is certainly a dimension. You, you, you cannot deny that that is a dimension of this. I mean, you know, the New Zealand's zero COVID policy was controversial, to yeah. say the least. And a lot of people, I suppose there would have been a lot of suffering as a result of that. People unable to see family. That created a degree of acrimony, a degree of bitterness against her uh, from certain sections. Now, New Zealand politics, and we previewed it, or we kind of did an analysis piece on it previously. In fairness, it's quite collaborative, mm. you know. The opposition party leader, Christopher Luxon, you know, was lavish in his praise of Ardern last week. He, you know, he issued a a very warm and kind of heartfelt statement to her. But certainly tension amongst the public had emerged. And I think Ardern was under pressure. Now, a lot of people will speculate that by leaving her role, she actually leaves the party in far worse position to fight the upcoming election. There is an election in October. They're held in New Zealand every four years. She leaves the party in far worse position than she otherwise would have if she was leader. So, you know, I mean, that has to be considered, certainly. It's very interesting. I remember at the time people were were calling this show and texting us and saying, oh, if only we had a leader of that calibre here and all of that kind of thing, you know. Well, that is the thing. And it just shows how maybe the international image of certain leaders isn't necessarily replicated at home. Absolutely. God knows we've seen that around the world, haven't we? Um, What to watch out for then? You think China? Yeah, a lot of things. Last week it was revealed that China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, he's set to embark on a European tour. He's due to visit both Germany and Belgium early next month. Now, he'll attend the Munich Security Conference, he'll visit the EU headquarters, you know, he'll 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 get around the place. But I think this tour could be could be vital in terms of the relationship between Europe and China. It will be seen as kind of an attempt to overcome the present strains between the two blocks, between between China and the European Union bloc. Wang Yi is a powerful diplomat. He was recently nominated uh, to the Politburo Bureau, which is, I suppose, the the, the inner cabinet yes. of China, if you like, if you want to, if you want to call it that. where the real power is, isn't it? Now, yeah. it's where the real power is. Now, whether mm. this tour yields any kind of breakthrough kind of remains to be seen. There are a lot of issues of contention between China and the EU. We have China's kind of... Uh, tacit support for Russia in terms of the war on Ukraine. So this will be seen as a, it's a big moment. It's the first kind of Chinese diplomat or Chinese uh, individual to come since Xi Jinping consolidated his power back in October. Uh, We could expect a visit from Xi maybe sometime soon, but maybe this is a kind of a precursor to that. Maybe so indeed. And uh, are we looking forward to an update on the European Parliament corruption probe? Yeah, I might speak about this in detail another week, but there has been an awful corruption saga going on in the European Parliament. It maybe has kind of flown under the radar to a certain extent, but essentially there's big, big questions being asked about whether uh, it's been dubbed Qatargate. And the question at heart is whether 
whether Qatar had sought to illegally influence the work of the European uh, mm. the European Parliament. I suspect they probably have, knowing Qatar and their various uh, their various escapades. Yeah. But I, I thought that was established because some people have had to. to uh to uh, walk away. I well, suppose. it has prompted the resignation of the, the Vice President of the European Parliament, Eva Cayley. So she was found to be complicit in the probe. Uh, the probe is progressing, I suppose. It is kind of humiliating from an EU perspective. It tarnishes the credibility and the legitimacy of the EU, I think, you know, for we often hear the term Brussels bureaucrats and a lot of negative sentiment towards the EU for the kind of uh, insulated nature of the institutions and this, I suppose, doesn't do it any good. So, interesting. It yeah. will be weaponised by opponents, I would imagine. Sweden and NATO. What, what's happening between Sweden and, and, and Turkey? What, what is that? Yeah, there is a spot that has emerged between them. And uh, the reason that the heart of it is a number of individuals Turkey wants extradited from the Nordic country. Uh, they're seen as, I think, terrorists in the Nordic country. They're, Kur- they're Kurdic Kurdish rather individuals and the Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen has attempted to defuse the situation uh, he's he's suggested that uh, Turkey isn't breaking or Sweden isn't breaking any promises Turkey has other ideas it's illustrative I think the whole thing the reason I wanted to mention it is it's illustrative of the fact that tensions even exist between NATO countries just because you're in the alliance yes. doesn't mean you're necessarily the best of friends And Turkey, of course, we'll speak about it more next week, but it's a very important member. It has the second largest military in NATO. It's situated in a a critical geopolitical location. But this, I feel, could evolve into a a long-running dispute. And it's something Sweden, which is eager to join the NATO alliance... Is that driven by what's happening in Ukraine, though, is it? Oh, well, it is, of course. And all these, these, you know, prospective new NATO members are being motivated by what's happening on their doorstep, what is happening in Ukraine. Um, and before I let you go, what are you making of uh, the Germans and the, the tanks? They're not giving permission for the tanks to be used um, by by the Ukrainians. Well, what are you making of that? I can understand part of the reason. I think there is um, there is kind of a historical legacy issue there. I think the... The whole notion of German tanks being used to fight fight a Russian army, I suppose, harks back to the days of World War Two, mm. and that is why Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been so uh, been so careful uh, and precautious around the issue. Now, really, though, I don't understand it. I think they should uh, they should just supply the tanks. I mean, they've indicated that they will allow Poland to supply the Leopard 2 tanks, and these tanks are supposed to be... Now, I'm not a military expert, but anything I've read suggests that they're supposed to be... Yes. Could be critical. E- in, even more effective, seemingly, than the American tanks. Even in, more effective in, than in the Abrams sort of tanks theater, and Americans yeah. or the Challenger 2 yeah. crafts, which the UK have supplied. So, I mean... I really hope that Germany just bites a bullet and... You see, I, I was... But then again, I'm, I'm probably more cynical than you, Thomas, but I thought it was just that, you know, when all of this is over, Germany wants to go back and have that relationship with Russia again in terms of natural resources and the like. There is probably is a degree of, of what we would call real politic to it, which yeah. is that for pragmatic and practical reasons that Germany is very cautious in terms of its relationship with Russia. We all know its huge dependence on Russia... Uh, how heavily, how heavily mm. that weighs on the country. So it may be that Schultz is, uh, has that in mind, but he did signal a major turning point last year. It was known as his Zeitenwende, mm. which is translates to turning point. He 
you know, launched a whole new series of, of military measures. So I kind of can't understand. I, I can understand, as I say, a part of this but I, I think Germany will ultimately have to supply the tanks. Think I think so? they're coming under too much pressure. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Thomas, is always a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much you for, for coming into us again uh, today. Thomas Conway there with our global politics segment. Uh, news and information is coming up. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecan, your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, Call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on, on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat. Uh, we're with you, of course, uh, every weekday morning from nine with uh, a tip today. And the ongoing health uh, crisis continues to dominate news and opinion. Uh, this morning, earlier on, we spoke to Connor and uh, to Tanya. Uh, following the weekend protest in Limerick and Connor really told us about his father and what his dad endured. Here's just a little of uh, what he had to say to us just after nine o'clock this morning. He was discharged to the nursing home and within a couple of hours in there, the GP was back at his bedside because he was calling for God. He was choking. He had exacerbations. Um, He was in a very dire state and... um, he, the GP diagnosed him with pneumonia in nursing home at that point. Now he had left Nina Hospital several hours earlier. Um, he was, the, we, we got back on, the family was all there, the GP, the nursing home staff. We got back on to Nina Hospital to ask them, uh, look, he, his, his bed is still warm. Can you take him back? He's, he's in a bad way. He's come here, you know, and he shouldn't be here. He needs medical help urgently. Um, Nina Hospital were forced to refuse to take him back because guess what friend the HSE had their protocol now the sheets may not have even been changed on his bed in Nina Hospital at that point but the protocol the HSEs don't make me swear but their protocol dictated that the ambulance needed to come and take him right back to Limerick um, where he had to go through the whole process all over again at 89 years of age uh, with the exacerbations, the post-stroke um, kind of medical complications, if you will. He had to go. I, I thought he was leaving us that night. I was with him in the resource unit in the ED. I made my peace with him. The next morning, he was back out in the what I call the zoo part of the ED, um, another week in the hospital uh, in UHL and then back to Nina where he finally, thankfully, did not pass on a trolley and he ended his life with dignity. But what he was put through during those weeks, Fran, was both ludicrous and unforgivable. Dr. Connor Reedy speaking to me just after nine o'clock this morning. Now, staying with health services, there are currently less than 650 dentists remaining in the medical card scheme in Ireland. And this number is at a 10-year low. Well, Deputy Michael Lowry highlighted the situation during a regional group private members motion in the Doyle on Thursday. Following input and support from across the House, the motion was unanimously adopted. And uh, Deputy Michael Lowry joins me now. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Michael, can you give us some of the background to this and how we ended up where we are now? Well, I suppose the first thing to say, Fran, is that good mental health care leads to a healthy body. And 
many illnesses and diseases are brought on by bad or poor teeth or neglected dental hygiene. So it's generally accepted good dental health care is paramount to overall good health. And despite the constant emphasis on preventative health care, we continue to risk the health of something like 37% of people by not making available to them uh, access to dentistry. So we we risk their health because they receive their dental care through the medical card centre uh, system. We threaten their health because of the dismal level of dental uh, care, medical care, dental care cover. Uh, you know, there's very little care for medical card holders and it's having an enormous impact on many people, both young and old. Why are dentists finding it so unattractive then to look after these people? Well, there are currently, as you mentioned at the outset, there are less than 650 dentists remaining in the medical card scheme in Ireland. That number has hit a 10-year low. Uh, the availability of licensed dentists per capita in this country has not increased since 2005. In other words, we have the same availability as 2005. And the number of new Irish trained dentists entering the Dental Council of Ireland, that hasn't changed in 25 years, which is amazing. 25 years, it hasn't changed. So there are very limited spaces available for dentistry training and that's one of the things the Minister committed to to do last week when he said that they will try and ensure that there are more college places available and that we can train more dentists in Ireland. We're exporting dentists on a regular basis but unfortunately people who can't get into the training centres here they have to go to other countries and when they go to the other countries they qualify but they remain there. For years, we've been talking about this on the show, Michael. I've been hearing from dentists uh, on this for for years, so it's been well flagged. How was it allowed to get to the situation it is now? Well, what dentists are telling us is that the private dentists, countrywide and across the prairie, they were contracted to provide services under the medical care scheme. They have withdrawn. Uh, obviously a lot of them are very reluctant to leave because of the impact it has on their patient list but they say that it's not viable under the pay terms and what's obviously important is that a new scheme would be drawn up and that you know business is business and it has to make sense for them other than that they're not going to be involved in the scheme and that's the nub of the issue for medical care holders but in general we have a shortage of dentists in the country. Now, the motion uh, that you put forward was unanimously adopted, but where do we go from here? Did you get any assurances from the department, from the minister? Yes, the minister attended the debate. I have to say he, you know, he understood what we were saying. He said he was very conscious of the fact that there was a huge issue that it needs to be addressed. Now, I raised the issue myself in particular about young uh, and adults with disabilities in particular who were shut out of treatment. Yes. And they continually suffer pain and discomfort. Children on the autism spectrum, they usually need to go under anaesthetic, which is difficult to access at the present time. And these children are tormented with pain and their parents feel hopeless and heartbroken for their child because they can't give them the treatment that they need. Uh, I have spoken to Minister Rabbit and Rabbit in relation to this about the issues around access to dental services for those with disabilities. And the Minister has taken a proactive role and she's about to put in place pathways to dental care for that cohort of people. Minister Donnelly and the HSE officials, they need to sit down with the Dental Council, acknowledge the extent of the problem, resolve the issues that are involved and provide a basic level of service uh, to every citizen regardless of his or her income 
Now, the Minister last uh, Wednesday or Thursday committed to do that. He also committed to uh, provide additional funding for the schemes and hopefully we'll see an improvement. Well, hopefully so indeed. You were mentioned in dispatches last week. We were speaking to David. Um, who discovered a huge waiting list for orthodontics, as you know. Yeah. Um, he discovered through your, you and your team that, you know, that uh, an option would be the cross-border one. But it, it appeared from our listeners that this isn't widely known, that this could be an option for them. Well, it's an option that's taken up by many people. Uh, the cross-border scheme is in operation and is funded uh, by the state. And effectively, what it means is that people here who are on a waiting list can be referred for cross-border treatment. It can be the UK or it can be Northern Ireland. Many people here use the service in Northern Ireland. And what happens is you pay up front for the scheme. Uh, you get immediate treatment within, you know, a week to two weeks. You could be on a list. If you make an application, you could be de- your case could be dealt with in Northern Ireland or the UK. You have to put the money up front and then you re- the money is refunded to you by the state. That's the way the scheme works. Mm. I think it's 80%, uh, is it? Yes, a a lot of people have used that scheme. But again, I suppose it's a case, uh, Fran, can you afford to pay it up front and can you afford to pay the 20%? It's not a scheme that can be used by a medical card holder, unfortunately, because they don't have the resources to do it. But it has been a successful scheme. A lot of people in the private sector certainly use it. Right, but we we were hearing about six-year waiting lists, Michael. You know, it's just not acceptable, is it? (laughs) No, orthodontic treatment is absolutely disastrous. You know, it it really is sad to see young people with awkward teeth. They become very self-conscious. You know, they're both uh, physically and emotionally upset about the whole thing. And uh, that's the area that we've asked the minister to focus on in the immediate future. Can we stay with uh, all things health? Um, The the, the rally, the protest in in Limerick, you, you were there. Um, what did you make of the huge turnout there? Yes, there was a big turnout, and I think that turnout uh, reflected the anger, the frustration, and the resentment that now exists uh, towards the HSE and the health service in general. Um, we heard I was there to listen, to learn, and I suppose I didn't hear anything from that I'm not hearing every day of the week. Yeah. Uh, my, both, you know, people in direct contact with myself or with my office. Uh, complaining, obviously, about the long waiting list, about access to the hospital system. And when you get into the hospital system, then how long are you left in accident and emergency? But can I say, you know, the emphasis has been, obviously, on the negativities in the service. Can I say that, you know, there are a big number of people working in all of our hospitals, our doctors, our nurses, our consultants, they are completely overwhelmed with work. They're doing fantastic work. And many, many people do have a good experience once they get into the system. The problem is accessing the system. Where do you stand on Nina Hospital, Michael? Well, if, and if you, have to, you have to put that in context. Mm. In 2009, uh, the department and the HSE come up uh, and HICWA came up with a reconfiguration. And as a result of that reconfiguration, it was said that accident and emergency services in Nina and Ennis were no longer safe for the public and that all emergency patients should be directed to Limerick. That was uh, in the HICWA report. 
And HICFA also said it was unsafe to treat complex emergency cases at NINA. So the patient throughput at accident and emergencies uh, was kind of too small. Uh, the variety of surgeries and clinical interventions was not sufficient to attract professionals. And with the you know, professionals with the medical and clinical skills to run a 24-hour emergency department and the operating theatres. Now, in Nina, the operating theatres were old and dilapidated. They were in place since 1954 and hadn't been upgraded, and it was considered they weren't fit for purposes. But the kernel of the issue, Fran, is that UHL was to be dramatically upgraded to take the additional workload, which was transferred from Nina and Ennis. And while there was big investment in Limerick, it was too little. It, it took too long to put it in place. And UHL still does not have the bed complement, which was proposed back in 2009. In 2009, we were told that Limerick would need 670 beds to manage the increased number of patients. Today, 14 years later, it has 530 beds. So all the analysis would indicate that it requires at least another 200 beds extra to cope with the current demand. Now, we heard on Saturday about the building of 96 bed blocks, that that's underway. But the fact is 48 of that new 96 beds will only be replacing existing beds which are going out of commission because they do not meet the HICFA standard. So effectively, we're only getting 48 new additional beds when we require an additional 200. And do I take it from you then, Michael, that, uh, you know, to, to do something about this, it's more about investment in UL than reopening NINA? Well, look... What I'm I would like to see Nina reopened. We would all like to see more access to accident and emergency. But all the medical professionals will tell you that uh, that this is not possible. Now, obviously, it's a debate that's going to continue. But I think the first thing is say there is, doesn't appear to be any real short-term answer to that other than to upgrade the existing facilities to provide additional staff, to provide additional beds. It's really about the bed complement. There's a shortage of beds. Now, if you have the beds, obviously you have to have the increased staffing levels and that has been proving difficult as well. So, Mm -hmm. uh, in essence, Fran, what happened here is the reconfiguration was carried out before the appropriate facilities, before the accommodation, before the resources and staff were put in place in Limerick. And that is the reason why we have this appalling vista. The, the policy initiative failed principally because the HSE didn't deliver on its own promises. The repercussions and sufferings of that are visible every day. And unfortunately, uh, we're going to see this continue. I would like to see Nina... Uh, utilised much better than it is. I would like to see Ennis brought into the equation much stronger than it is. I think there's an awful lot additional work that had, could be carried out in relation to accidents and in relation to emergencies in these hospitals and that's what the HSE are looking at at the moment. The irony, of course, is that HICWA closed uh, the emergency department in Nina because of safety to patients and then, I mean, people are dying on trolleys down in, in UL, you know? Yes, well, th- this is this is the the reality of it, but let me say again, in relation to 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 Limerick, you know, because a lot of people are concerned about going there. Um, the group in Limerick they did invest 130 
million in new infrastructure. We have an exceptionally good cancer care unit there. We have a neurological and stroke centre with a breast care unit and a cystic fibrosis unit, Mm. and they are functioning very well. The real problem in Limerick is at the accident and emergency and the lack of their ability uh, to cope and to process the people as they arrive and to find beds for them. Mm. <clears throat> That's the issue. And in the past with me, you, you blamed the management. Do you, do you still, are you still of that opinion? Is this a management? Well, uh... I, I think there's a combination of lack of bed, com- bed complement and also poor management decisions. I think the management there could be improved. I raised this in the Dáil uh, four months ago and a result of raising it with the Taoiseach, a team of specialists was sent in to assist and support the local management. That has brought about improvements. But there are fundamental problems there, and it really is down to a situation of the capacity isn't in Limerick to cope with the 500 million people in the in the region. Uh, now, when you mention Nina Hospital, uh, at the time... Uh, 25 million. I secured 25 million from the then Minister Mary Harney as a capital investment. And Nina has been transformed from a hospital under threat of closure at the time to now being a busy, thriving, and Category 2 hospital with new surgical suites, state of the art endoscopy unit, a new bottom diagnostic centre. And day surgery is working to full capacity. We have step down beds in Nina, which have been utilised to take pressure off UHL. So there's a huge variety of outpatient clinics also in Nina with top consultants attending the hospital. One aspect of Nina that I see needs attention is that the injury, the injury unit in both actually Nina and Cashel yeah. are totally underutilised and could and should uh, play a greater role. Well, there's often not it, doctors available in those units. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a vicious circle. And the one thing is very clear is that the HSE is not fit for purpose it needs to be disbanded. We need to move on with slow to care. That's agreed across the political divide. Uh, obviously, there's resistance from within the system because when you go for major change, Fran, you encounter vested interests who don't want to change. So there's massive problems in our health system. And the reason we had the march and the rally on Saturday, the reason so many turned out is that they're frustrated at night they don't see progress and they're trying to ensure that the message has got a lot politically that this is an urgent matter and must be dealt with. Could I finally just bring it up? The health is right across the newspapers today, but the Mental Health Commission identifying serious risk and the safety and well-being of children accessing calms, Michael. Now, the open cases, I think it's about 140 of them, it's known to be in community health areas covering Clare, Limerick and indeed North Tipperary as well. So this is very, very serious for our young people. What, what's, what's your thoughts on this? Well, I have sought information on this uh, this morning. I, I understood that a review had taken place in the Midwest region and that as part of that review, they had identified weaknesses, they had identified neglect, they had identified children that were at risk and needed further care. My understanding is that the processes were put in place to deal with those children who were highlighted. Uh, my, my thoughts are my understanding that 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 has happened, but that the report, which was started in June, uh, in other words, that events have overtaken, the report has overtaken the action in the Midwest region. Now, I'd look for a full briefing. I'm going to get that full briefing later on today. 
as a member of the regional group, we put down a motion to the Count Cola this morning asking for uh, an urgent, specific debate. And I certainly would rather see that type of debate getting priority uh, tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday, rather than going back to the, the old chestnuts of Pascal Donahue and, and, and vans and posters. I think those are the real issues that we need to be addressing in Dáil Air. All right, Michael, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Good morning to Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, Janelle. Deputy Michael Larry speaks to us this morning. 1800-938-007. Um, pay the staff a decent wage for the work they do in hospitals. No need to applaud them then, says one of our listeners. Um, uh, somebody saying is Michael having a laugh over our health services is in such a state because uh, the likes of Michael has continued supporting this government uh, I suppose it's been successive governments uh, Joe that has failed miserably where health is concerned and it's going back a long long way and that's uh, for sure 1800-938-007 back in a moment Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie And you're very welcome back to uh, Tip Today. My screen has uh, died on me here. I was going to bring you some uh, text and uh, WhatsApp, but I'll do so in just a moment's time. You can continue to uh, get in touch with us. 083-311-3311. Paul Lafford is with me. Paul, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? Uh, I'm very well indeed, Paul, and good to talk to you. We were talking on Friday about the closer the closure of Argus and indeed local businesses in uh, Tipperary Town as well, Paul. What, What are you making of this? But sure, I mean, anybody that loses their jobs, it's absolutely terrible. But my own opinion was to see them small businesses like Wellworth and Kingston's in Tipperary uh, closing was an awful lot worse. And I'll be honest with you, the likes of the big British retailers came into Ireland at a time, with like the Debenhams and all them, when the country was fairly affluent. And now... The minute things get bad, they're all, they're all gone again. And we, we saw it. Devonham's going first, then Argos, and who's going to be next? So I think that the incentive should be there for people now that what if you do shop local and support these local businesses because they are, they are hitting hard times. And the the only thing I would say about, and I think that's the way we should all be thinking, Paul. But then again, money is tight, and we have our our, our difficulties with with paying for electricity and diesel and all of these kind of things. So you can't help um, that uh, people would have to look for value for money as well, and maybe where is the cheapest that they can get um, products? I agree with you, and. Um there are, I'd be honest with you, a few years ago, I did um, a, a course through ETB about online marketing and e-commerce and all that. And it was probably one of the one of the best years of my life in my working life doing this. It was just absolutely fantastic. But I always remember one of the things that I remember from that, where the, the, the man that was teaching us at the time, Alan Joyce, Alan said that, Remember that the internet, for instance, doesn't close at 6 o'clock. If you're a retailer, you have no staff costs, no energy costs, no insurance costs, no rent costs. If you want to go shopping online, 
you can go shopping on, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day if you want. Mm. But I remember, and there's just one one incident that happened to me at, at Christmas and it just proved to me where a lot of small retailers need to pull their socks up. Um, like yourself, Fran, I played a bit of music mm. and I had a few bob put together and I decided I wanted to buy um, a rack case for our own modules and all these. You know what they are. Mm, of course, like a and flight case. To, and, uh, exactly. Yeah. Mm. So, And I also wanted to treat myself to a new guitar. Mm. Now, I wouldn't buy a top-end guitar, but I wanted to buy something like, I'm not just not good enough to buy a really good one. But anyway, that's not here. I hear this. Go on with we it. We were, no, seriously, oh, believe me. But anyway, we went, we were in Cork, <clears throat> and I went into a music shop, and I went in anyway, and after about 10 minutes, this fella comes over to me, and he goes, well, bud. Oh, God. So we were on the ba- a, a, a bad foot, and I'll be honest with you, friend. I hate that so, too, yeah. Yes. So that was fine anyway. So I told him what I wanted. I wanted a rack unit. And his words exactly as were, what do you want that for? And I said, well, I, I tried to explain to him what I wanted. I'm not very techy, but I knew what I wanted it for. And oh, he says, we wouldn't have ended that here. He said, um, go to a DJ shop. So I walked towards the guitar section then, and there was two young lads in front of me. And he shouted from across the shop at them, that they had obviously picked up on the guitar mm. and he roared at them, don't pick up anything without permission. So I just turned. We were staying in Cork that night. I went down the stairs, went back to our hotel. I logged on that night to a German company, you know who they are. I do. And yes. ordered the items I wanted, friend, and they were delivered free within a week. Cheaper. And, and that's the issue, isn't it? And that's is the issue. So exactly what you said there a few minutes ago, and you're quite right, that people have only got X amount to spend. But also, if people don't get the service they want, they'll go. And remember, you'll only lose your customers once. Mm. You won't lose them a second time. I mean, I work for a small indigenous Irish company, and if you just saw how hard our owner, Andrew, works, for instance, to keep us all in jobs, Mm. absolutely works around at the clock. And a lot of people who are in work in in business we say for that length of time they do work very very hard but there are people out there who kind of who really do need to pull their socks up like that guy in Cork for instance today that he lost the sale those two young lads for instance that picked up a guitar how did he know they weren't going to buy something really really expensive they might have had Christmas money or whatever how did he know so there's dual responsibility here then Paul I mean there's a bit of responsibility on us to try and shop local as much as we can and it's a case of use it or lose it but there's also responsibility on the businesses to provide a, a very good service and and to be personable to people who go into you for God's sake you know yeah well I mean I will always uh, try to, to shop local I mean especially in care for instance just before Christmas there I needed tires in my car. I went over to Eamon Gleeson, in and out, within 20 minutes, new tires in my car done. So, like, these services are all available close by to us. And, but you'll, you'll know, you'll, you'll know the ones you can trust. you know the ones that do a good, a good job. But regrettably, there are some of them out there that need a kick in the backside. to give themselves a kick in the backside. And remember that people can just simply go home, log online, and what, anything you want from a needle to an anchor, you can get it delivered to your house. Absolutely. And like yourself, I had a, a situation lately. I was in a, a, a pharmacy in a certain town. 
in in the county, and the service was appalling. I mean, it was, yeah. it was appalling. I mean, you, you know, I mean, really, I mean, I, it's you know. all very fine for these people. I mean, I think it. Look, it reminds me when we came out of this pandemic thing, the likes of the hotel business had the goodwill and the support of the entire nation. Yes. What happened? We ended up in a situation where they killed the goose that laid the golden egg. They had the best goodwill of people and prices went absolutely through the roof. We got caught ourselves last year. We stayed on a a staycation. It won't happen again, believe me. And I found, I spoke to you about this before, like for instance, to go to Dublin for a cycle event was cheaper to, to go to France. And that's the reality of it. So like, they really do need to be and careful. And the that. excuse you'll get, uh, Paul, will be, you know, well, look at uh, what our energy bills are now and our staff bills and all of these kind of things. Does that hold anything for you? No, not really, Fran, because I think it's very, very easy to jump and blame this. Like, I mean, this war in Ukraine is blamed for everything. Global warming is blamed for everything. Mm. Like, how come there are people, like, I mean, I was listening to you talking to Darren the other morning, for instance, and he spoke that... Darren Ward, yeah. Mm. Are, are they the last um, generation, generation of yeah. retailer? Mm. And, you know, I was actually thinking of it over the weekend. And he probably is. And But yet, like, people like Darren, who have been in business for so long, they're they're keeping their business going. They're keeping for a, going for a long, long time. So, like, they must be doing something right. So you have to have your proper business model and... Know your customers, and I think if you give your customers the proper service, regardless of what issues you'll have, I think they'll keep coming back. That's my own opinion. Paul, always a pleasure to talk and to you. My, my best to the family. Look after yourself, Paul. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you. Bye bye to you now. That's uh, Paul Lafford. Paul's a regular contributor to the program. Eighteen hundred nine three eight double o seven. One of our listeners telling me my daughter was referred to CAMS when she was six. Now she's fifteen, and she has never been seen by them. So that's nine years waiting, and um, that's that's just. Uh, Incredible. 1800 Let's have a look back at the weekend in sport. And delighted to be joined by our sports editor, uh, Paul. Good morning to you, Paul. Morning, Fran. How are you? And uh, good to talk to you today. Can we start with uh, GAA and, of course, uh, the Tipperary loss to uh, Cork? Only in the last while, though, Paul. Yeah, uh, yeah. it was a kind of a disappointing end to the game, yeah. all right, Fran. Yeah, Tip were up as much as eight points halfway through the second half. But uh, we're beaten. Cork got two late goals and uh, then a couple of points to seal a one-point win. It finished up 3-14 to 119. So disappointing to lose. It was the Munster Senior Hurling League final. Um, you know, so it's not the end of the world, but mm. you don't want to be losing uh, to Cork either, especially in a, a game like that when, when they came back and the, the home crowd really got behind Cork uh, in the last five minutes. But overall... And even speaking to Liam Cannell after, like very much positive um, vibes coming from Tipperary Hurland this year. And uh, yeah, there was plenty of good performances all around the field. I thought particularly the half back line of uh, Enda Heffernan, Podge Campion and um, Brian McGrath were all very good. And uh, Connor Stakelam in midfield as well. Jason Ford had a, had another good game, 13 points I think he got. And uh, we saw Sean Ryan, Temple Derry, uh, score another great goal. So plenty of positives really all around, but uh, the only negative being the result and, and the manner in which they lost that game. The Hearty Cup final, an all-Tipperary Hearty Cup final in fact. 
Yeah, for the first time ever, Fran All Tipperary Hearty Cup final, which was a surprise to me. I would have guessed in the the long illustrious history of the Hearty Cup that there would have been a, an All Tip final at least once. But no, Thurles CBS and Cashel Community School both won their semi finals over the weekend, so they qualify for this year's final. It'll be played on the fourth of February, so it's the same day as Tip Play Leash in the National Hurling League opener. So no time or date, or sorry, no time or venue. Uh, for the Hearty Cup final has been confirmed yet but Cashel they beat Ardskull Reach of Limerick 112 to 14 points on Saturday in their semi-final and Thurles had a, a strong win over Middleton 320 to 2-7 so uh, it should set up a, a great occasion friend Hearty Cup games are always um, you know really lively atmosphere so it, with two two teams um, being so close by and the two schools Cashel and Thurles and all the different clubs involved I'm sure there's there's players who might play for one club but they're in two different schools and things like that so it'll it'll be a great occasion um, wherever that is played. Johnny, Johnny Luby is uh, still leaving off the 1972 Hearty Cup game. Uh, he's, st- he's still getting pints based on that as far as, as, far as I know. So. <laughs> so that's what's on the line for on Saturday 4th. Yeah. Silverware for SARS yesterday. Yeah, yeah, the uh, under-21A hurling tournament final was on yesterday. It was on last night, actually, in Clonalty. Um It was Thurda Sarsfields against Mullinahone in the A final, and it finished up at Thurda Sarsfields 216 at Mullinahone 110. So fair play to Thurlis there. And in the B, Killanaw beat Burgess after extra time in the semi-final. Uh, that was on Sunday morning in Castellani at half 11. Went to extra time. It finished up Killanaw 14 points. Burgess won 9. So uh, Killanaw will play Upper Church Drumban in the final there. And that will be uh, next Sunday. In ladies football, then a good good start to the campaign. Yeah, Tipperary ladies footballers got their league campaign off to a winning start. This was yesterday in Feathertown Park. Uh, it was at two o'clock, and Tipperary beat Westmead one thirteen to one eleven. Uh, among the notable storylines going into the game, I suppose, was the return of Cares Ashley Maloney, yeah. um, one of the best ladies footballers really in the country, really. But she had a, suffered a, a bad knee injury there just over fifteen months ago, and uh, she had a long journey back. But she met it back, started full forward, and actually scored seven points in her return. And uh, Anna Rose Kennedy got the goal in the second half. So um, a good win for Peter Creedence, uh, Tipperary ladies footballers, and they're uh, back in action next uh, Sunday. So hopefully they can uh, keep the ball rolling. Hopefully so indeed. What happened in Camogie, Paul? Camogie, we had the Munster Senior A Schools Camogie final over the weekend. It was uh, Cashel Community School against uh, Ursuline Thurlis. So it was a busy day for Cashel. It was the same day that they had their Hearty Cup semi-final. But uh, unfortunately for them, they were beaten by... Um, they were beaten by Ursuline Thurlis. It finished up on a full-time score of 112-2-4. to So fair play to Ursuline. They now go on to the All-Ireland series there. And we wish them well. What about rugby? Rugby, uh, friend, yeah, there was a lot in the world of rugby uh, in Tipperary this weekend. Of course, the AIL is continuing the All-Ireland League uh, with three Tipperary teams in action over the weekend. In Division 2A, Nina Ormond probably had the most notable win of the weekend. They had a big win at home to Black Rock and uh, they bet them 20 points to 10 in New Ormond Park. Whilst Cashel, they had a home defeat to the league leaders, Queen's. It finished up uh, Cashel 17 points, Queen's 21. So uh, uh, they would have got a losing bonus point out of that, but um, uh, no kind of uh, shame in losing to that Queen's team. They're top of the league. And uh, just so, so Cash will go to fourth now. Nina are in fifth, and that's after 11 games. So they've seven games left, and it's the top four go to the playoffs. So both the Tipperary teams very much are still in play in Division 2A. In Division 2C, Clanmel are uh, waving the Tipperary flag in that division. They beat Brough 23 points to 10, and Clanmel are up into fourth place now. So they're in the playoff spots as things stand. And uh, it's been a marked improvement for Clanmel on last year. Last year, they 
during the relegation playoff so it would be great if they can stay in the uh, playoff places and hopefully push for a promotion later in the season then uh, more uh, nationally I suppose Munster were beaten in the Champions Cup by Toulouse over the weekend that was 20 points to 16 but they still qualify for the last 16 and will play against a South African side Cell Sea Sharks that's who they've gotten in the draw so not ideal for Munster they're going to have to fly down to uh, to South Africa to play the South Sea Sharks so I think that's the first wow. weekend of April so not not an ideal um, uh, fixture for schedule sure. there for mm-hmm. Munster because I think they have to go down to South Africa again like two weeks later or something so um, I'd God. say they're scratching their heads inside Limerick uh, booking flights and things like that <laughs> the, the Munster yeah. team What about but, Ben Healy? Uh, Paul? What yeah Ben Healy yeah, he named, named to the Scotland Six Nations mm. squad during the week so I suppose uh, it was kind of rumoured for a long time here around Nina about whether he was going to first leave Munster and we knew Glasgow and Edinburgh had both been involved in uh, trying to get Ben Healy to sign um, over the last kind of two years or so but he signed there a couple of weeks ago to Edinburgh and then the next kind of thing was right well is he going to play with Scotland he has on his grandparents side um, uh, has eligibility to play for Scotland and uh, yeah he was named in the squad there during the week so it'll be very exciting now to see him hopefully uh, line out uh, in the Six Nations um, coming up in the next couple of weeks and uh, Ireland are playing Scotland in the World Cup later in the year so it would be uh, mad to see (laughs) if he was about to play that game against Ireland at the World Cup but I think everyone around here in Nina and everyone in Tipperary I'm sure is is, uh, wishing him all the best and really hoping he does well because uh, I think we've kind of um, I don't know a bit sour with how it kind of went at Munster in terms of him not really getting a a fair not a fair shout but you know we we kind of wanted to see him play a bit more like and and the way it's gone but um, that's just professional rugby I suppose and hopefully he does well with Scotland now well hopefully indeed Irish women's uh, came forth did they yeah this is the rugby sevens so we have uh, Tipperary's Amy Lee Murphy Crow of course uh, flying the Tipperary flag here for us Um, she's just one of the the best players in world rugby uh, sevens anyway and uh, she scored four tries over the weekend helped Ireland up to a fourth finish uh, on the weekend they lost the bronze medal final against Australia I do believe but uh, overall they're they're doing pretty well so this is uh, there's eight there's seven rounds of this this was the third round and uh, the overall uh, score or the overall leaderboard let's say it's the top four teams qualify for the Olympics next year which is something Ireland have never done so they're currently in fourth place so if they could hold on to that spot over the next uh, couple of months they would uh, qualify for the Olympics which would be huge so um, overall good good result there for for the women it was on in um, Hamilton in New Zealand and they're actually playing next weekend in in Sydney so um, a busy uh, busy couple of weeks there for those for sure in soccer Paul Soccer, yeah, two Tipperary teams are in the FAI Junior Cup. Uh, it's the fifth round, so the last 32 teams in the country. Uh, Peak Villa, Thurlaside, they're actually beaten at home by Killarney Celtic 1-0, which will be disappointing for them, but I believe their striker, Pippi Carroll, was injured early on in that game, which um, wouldn't have been ideal, but they lost 1-0 at home to Killarney Celtic. But on the other hand, it was St. Michael's who got the win. They're into the last 16. They beat Dublin side Holt Celtic. They went 1-0 down early, but uh, came back. I think Paul Breen got two goals, and they went on to win 3-1. So St. Michael's are into the last 16 of the FEI Junior Cup, and they could fancy their chances of, of going on a long cup run here. 
I love the fact we're talking about basketball now. We're talking about basketball success as well. Yeah, two weeks in a row. Last week we were talking about yeah. Nina CBS had a All-Ireland final um, coming up. Uh, it was last Tuesday and I can tell you that they won that All-Ireland final. Uh, the All-Ireland Under-19C boys final it was uh, Nina CBS against Claude Verlin of Galway and it was Nina who won by three points on a final score of 45 points to 42. So uh, there's some great pictures um, from that game after it last Tuesday. So uh, fair play to my old school Nina CBS. And just before we finish, on your bike, uh, Paul? Yeah, cycling. Sam Bennett, uh, you would have heard in the bulletins this morning, got his yeah. uh, 2023 off to a winning start over the weekend. The Bora Hansgrohe and Carcon Shoreman won the opening stage of the Vuelta San Juan in Argentina. So that continues throughout the week. So he won the first stage there. So uh, hopefully we'll get to see much more uh, success for Sam Bennett over the 2023. Fair play indeed. I'm just out of time, Paul, so we don't have time to look ahead, but uh, lots of sports news and information right throughout the week here. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Fine. Thank you. That's our sports editor, Paul Carroll, from our Nina Sports Desk uh, this morning. We'll take a break. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip today on 1-800-938-007. The Gardaí are expected to launch a murder investigation following the receipt of post-mortem results on the body of an 89-year-old patient who died after he was allegedly attacked by another patient in a Cork hospital on Sunday morning. Glad to be joined now by Ralph Regal, who is Southern Correspondent with the Irish Independent. Good morning to you, Ralph. Good morning, Fran. And thanks so much for your time today. What can you tell us about this, Ralph? Yeah, it's a very shocking incident, Fran, that erupted shortly after 5am yesterday morning in the Mercy University Hospital. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with the Mercy, it's one of the oldest acute hospitals in the state and it's located right in the centre of of Cork um, City. So shortly after 5am, patients and staff rushed to the assistance of this 89-year-old man, Matthew Healy. He had suffered severe injuries in an apparent assault by another patient, a man in his 30s. Now, despite desperate attempts to assist um, the 89-year-old, he was pronounced dead at the scene. So the scene was immediately sealed off. And the 30-year-old, 32-year-old man who was involved was restrained and was later arrested by the Gardaí. Now, he was detained under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and was taken to the Bridewell Garda station for questioning. Now, under Section 4 of that act, the Gardaí have 24 hours question someone. So later this evening uh, there'll be a decision made on whether to release this man or to charge him. Now at the moment there are two separate investigations. There's the investigation by the Gardaí into the circumstances in which this this widower died and there's also an investigation by the Mercy University Hospital into the general circumstances of what happened how both of these individuals ended up on a general ward and what precisely happened to precipitate this this awful um, incident. And is there any notion as to what triggered it, uh, Ralph? Um, at the moment, it, it's quite vague, Fran. I mean, these two men were not known to each other, and um, so there was no connection whatsoever. Um, one of the things that's being looked at is the general medical condition of both, mm. and whether the medical condition of both might have played some part in this. They're also looking at the fact that a possible issue over noise 
may have been the triggering factor. But I think it, it, it's going to be a very long and complex investigation into precisely what happened. Now, a member of staff in the Mercy um, suffered minor injuries as part of the response to um, the incident and, and the bid to restrain this man in his 30s and adding an entire... There's so many layers of tragedy to this story, not only that an 89-year-old man would lose his life in these circumstances, but the the individual involved, his, he was a widower. He made a widower just three weeks ago. His own wife, Delia, died in St. Finbar's Hospital on January the 2nd. And we also understand that the man in custody, the man in his 30s, that he had suffered a family tragedy over recent months as well. Oh, my God. Do, do we know, was there a weapon involved or is it... Is... And not per se, Fran. I mean, yeah. certainly, as we would understand the weapon, no, there was not. Um, yes. It was quite a serious assault. And we also understand that Gardaí are looking very carefully at whether um, miss, the, the deceased may have been struck with or struck against um, a walking frame which was beside his bed. Well, it's a, a great tragedy anyway, that's for sure. Ralph, we really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you. Uh, that's Ralph Regal there, Southern Correspondent with the Irish Independent, and Ralph is writing about this extensively in the current edition of uh, the Indo there. Now, the dangers being faced by patients in A&E units, no surprise to tip today. Uh, listeners, you might remember, Breda spoke to us on the show a few weeks ago. She told us about her experience of being threatened by a patient. Here's just a little of what she had to say. For over an hour, he was cursing and swearing at me, um, telling me all sorts and different things. This particular person, he, he stood up then, and he got he's lighter, and he came up to my face with the lighter, and he kept flicking the lighter at me. Oh, my God. And part of me was, if I scream, he's going to set me on fire or he's going to he can hit me in the face and get me you know so i was waiting for someone someone that i could see to get me help so i i I was just talking nice because i've been warned about with the oxygen to stay away from naked flames and that of course so then he sat back down on his trolley again and this time he lit up a cigarette And he taught me he was going to set me on fire. I was in a hospital full of people. And there was no one, no one that could help me. And I said, I'm going to meet my my days here on fire. My God, that's uh, Breda speaking to Alison uh, some time ago, just just a few weeks ago, uh, telling us about her experience there of uh, just a horrific incident in our hospitals as well. It seems to go from bad to worse, doesn't it? Um, 1800-938-007. Fran, you would think Dublin councillors voting an extra... Uh, 1% tax on people staying in Dublin hotels. Councillors were asked, why is the money taken for... Uh, what is the money taken for? They said because we wanted was the reply, and that's uh, making reference to our our chat with uh, Paul Lafford uh, there um, about just the cost, I suppose, of hotel accommodation 
uh, around the country as well. Um, okay, lots more coming into us, and what I'll do is I'll put it all together and bring it to you tomorrow. But just a couple more. Uh, well done to that speaker. That's making reference to Dr. Connor Reedy and to Tanya Devito, who spoke to us yesterday um, earlier on about the protest in Limerick. Well done to that speaker. It says I attended the protest on Saturday. It was great to see such a huge uh, turnout, and so sad to hear the stories of lives lost in UHS. UHL as a result of uh, neglect it says here. Uh, Anne-Marie was on to us in response to Paul Lafferty's chat with me saying uh, Paul is right about hotels ripping us off supermarkets are constantly hiking their prices yet uh, they were the ones that cleaned up during the lockdown uh, we shopped like never before. We're always delighted to get your uh, voice notes and uh, again this listener is harking back to our chat about uh, the loss of uh, Argus, uh, not only in Clonmel, but right around the country. I was very shocked to hear that Argos are closing. Um, they have a great variety of products for everyone. Um, great for Christmas time doing shopping. Um, they're great for appliances. Um, bought loads of stuff off them when we moved house. Great prices. Um, Shocked. There'll be nothing left in Clonmel soon enough. And uh, I suppose with Brexit and all that, the cost of supplying things and everything that it uh, affected it, but um be a big loss to the town. And that's one of our listeners joining us there with a voice note. You can do that at any time, by the way, if you want to send us a voice note, if there's anything you want to make comment on, it's 83 311 Now, by sending us that, you're giving us tacit agreement that uh, we can broadcast it live on air. That's about it for me. Emma produced Ali, looks after our content. Uh, Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel, and I will talk to you tomorrow. You look after yourselves in the meantime, won't you? Bye-bye now. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.